46 states reporting widespread activity as a deadly new virus sweeps through the city. The World Health Organization declaring a global health emergency. Once a pandemic emerges, it's really too late. All you can do is put out the fire. We're trying to get ahead of the curve and stop them before they emerge. EcoHealth Alliance is working on the ground to stand between you and the next pandemic. From our offices here in New York, we send our staff all over the world. We form alliances with local partners in every country we work in. Otherwise, we can't achieve the results we get. EcoHealth Alliance created the first hotspots map for emerging diseases, identifying the exact places on the planet where the next pandemic is most likely to emerge. So we take our science and we apply it on the ground and we show that you can predict when the next outbreak is coming and actually prevent it. It saves lives, it saves money, and people are really grateful for that. This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of sect? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting a position on the end. We'll never let the children back until that door to leave for the world. And I want you to be able to give me the ability to Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today we're going to dive into a topic that is, I feel like should be getting a lot more attention than it's getting right now in the mainstream press, but I can't say I'm too surprised that it isn't. Um, Also, I was a little frustrated when I was going through editing our previous episode, which will be out by the time you hear this, uh, episode 88 sorry, episode 87, about Martin Bormann, the Nazi in exile. And I thought, damn it, what a missed opportunity that, you know, we had this big Nazi episode in 87 and then 88, we're doing something else. But it's probably like, in, it's good. It's kind of like a Queeno not dying right on Halloween back when we thought that uh, that had happened, that he had <laughs> died on like October 30th or something or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that was yeah, original, yeah, yeah. Maybe. I mean, yeah. In a way, uh, maybe Martin Borman was actually a prelude to the eighty-eight, and maybe, maybe the, today's topic is not so not eighty-eight after all. Yeah, because the deeper you dive into it, um, you see a certain amount of chicanery going on in terms of the manipulation of the science. that uh, is approaching pretty scary 88 levels, I would say. Uh, The trajectory that the global health regime has embarked on in the last maybe 10 to 15 years, um, I think 
I don't know. I'm increasingly convinced uh, has quite directly led us to the situation that we're all living in today in the world under the uh, endless lockdown of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, yeah, just well, just two weeks. It'll just be two weeks. Stop just two weeks to stop the spread. Two uh, weeks to stop the spread. Um, so it's um, been yeah, how many months so now? Crazy. Like seven, well, it, 19, just, 20 months? It's funny. I was just talking the other day and I had like, you know, not a true sense of deja vu, like, but not when you really have that kind of uncanny feeling. But, you know, kind of I kind of appreciate that I was having this kind of conversation where I was sort of expressing skepticism about like the end of the of the sort of pandemic situation or in that like you know there would ever be kind of a return to life as it was before and you know I was getting kind of a similar reaction where it's like well you know like the scientists say and I was like you know it's funny because I like almost like a whole year ago even before I think you and I started the podcast or maybe very shortly thereafter I remember saying the exact same thing when the vaccines were first coming out and, Mm. you know, just being like, I don't know. Like, I just feel like I'm not, I just, I'm pessimistic, you know, about their, how effective they're going to be at actually ending the pandemic and getting kind of the response of like, come on, you know, uh, the scientists say, you know, they say all these things, but Mm -hmm. you know, and when I kind of brought that up, you know, upon hearing uh, it again, I was like, well, you know, I, I, it's funny because I remember hearing this a year ago about the vaccines. So it's hard for me to, you know, be optimistic really. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, uh, what I would hear would be like, well, you know, the scientists didn't predict certain things. They didn't predict Delta. They didn't predict that people would refuse to get the vaccine. And <laughs> for one, like I, I feel that from like the research that we've done, like for our past sort of forays into this topic, on one hand, like I know that they did predict it. They did know oh, yes. that something like Delta was a distinct possibility. And they did know that people were going to refuse the vaccine. You know, like yeah. even in dark winter, you know, they were saying that it would be a thing where people were going to refuse the vaccine. So that's mm-hmm. one thing. And on the other hand, like even if they didn't, then they should have, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> there's every a, indication. A ro- it doesn't take a Dr. Fauci to figure that out. Yeah, there's every indication that, well, leaving even aside the aspect of Delta, like I think that one of the most significant uh, social aspects of how the uh, pandemic has played out, and you can't really think of epidemiology or virology separately from the social, like that's a thing, you know, it's not like a, uh, you know, despite what uh, some people may say, we're not living in a simulation or, you know, a a model in in a classroom or on a computer, you know, we actually, uh, you know, it's not like a sort of vacuum or, or uh, a sterile world. Like there are sort of uh, nuance, social nuances and things like that that need to be taken into account. You can't separate the way that like these diseases that are transmitted through social contact, through human interaction are going to uh, pan out and behave without accounting for the social aspect. And oh, yeah. like, pe- like the idea that people really did like didn't account for the politicization and just like you know just let it slide into this per like you know this this very convenient little setup where like it's impossible to like everyone is just like so entrenched in these like ideological camps just like captured with mm-hmm. in in these little like bubbles uh ideological bubbles uh it's really like the perfect you know 
uh, outside of the conversation of like COVID being a bioweapon or something, which we will get into. Oh, like, we will get to. You can definitely see the weaponization of like the culture war bullshit like happening. Like if COVID's a bioweapon, like part of the bioweapon is like the social manipulation where like, and it's a, it's like we've seen in many cases, it's dialectical where like there's a yeah. manipulation of two sort of a thesis and an antithesis to create like a perfect synthesis to perpetuate like a certain uh, desired result or status quo. Um, but it does sound yeah. like the Hegelian dialectic. It's the, you know, nothing you, new under you, the sun. There's nothing new under the, the sun. You get the one group afraid of for their safety, and then you get the other group to give the rights away, and then etc. No, but it really does kind of feel like that. It, it reminds me of how there was kind of a meme going around last year, maybe more during like the George Floyd protests of like fill in the blank is the real pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, and even that kind of betrays um, the, the kind of logic you were talking about of looking at a quote pandemic as something that has uh, inherently social uh like phenomenology and features to it yes. that it's not just like the science, you know, it's actually, uh, it's much more complex and intertangled and, you know, I, and I share your kind of a slight skepticism of some of these experts because they do talk about things all the time about how everything's connected. One thing we'll get into today with some of the scientists we're talking about is uh, a weird little phrase that I've seen pop up in the public health world called One Health. They all, they all uh, you know, one of the big guys we'll talk about today, Peter Daszak from EcoHealth Alliance, um, is very fond of this. And I think there's even a, a kind of institute at, I think, the UC Davis that is called like the One Health, you know, Institute or whatever. And that means basically that it's not just about the health of humans. It's not just about the health of animals. It's not just the health about the health of the environment. There's only one health and <laughs> everything has to be taken as a whole, which is like uh, in a kind of broad boilerplate way. It's like, yeah, sure. That's like all these things true. are systems yeah. and everything. But I just get such like deep, eco- like sus deep ecology vibes from that. Um, which again, we'll, we'll probably get to later, but it's like that, even that frame of thinking, it, it should like, I don't know. I feel like more things should be occurring to these people, um, instead of them being like, oops, like we failed to consider kind of like, you know, nine 11 where it's like, oops, we failed to consider that terrorists might hijack I a mean, plane and fly yeah, into a well, building. It's like exactly. literally on TV, like in novels, like it's everywhere. It's in intelligence reports. Like it's, we're swimming would, in that yeah, idea. I was thinking you know? about that and it's really amazing how like the, like Trump is the ultimate sigil or, you know, like the ultimate like uh, screen behind which like you can make that work or make you all buy that, you know, like everything that he does, like by like in one group, like, uh, you know, in one narrative is treated as like incredibly stupid and mm-hmm. like that he's just a complete idiot. So like yeah. everything that like nothing that he does can be like, calculated or like you know and then of course on the other side there's like everything he does is like brilliant and like some strategic genius like working towards goals that have nothing to do with like his real agenda or his real political (laughs) goals like but uh you know on the other side it's just like oh well you know if trump like suspended this moratorium on gain of function research or something and then he conveniently you know shut down like you know the monitoring system for like pandemics or something like that and then he was like oh you know i'm suspending this grant and uh 
something like that. Like, you know, it's all just like, oh, you know, he's a nativist. Like, he's crazy. Like, he's a bumbling fool. But, like, yep. maybe, like, all this is actually di- directed towards something. Like, maybe the people telling him to do this stuff or getting him all riled up or putting him yep. out there, like, it's because he's, like, the ultimate shit coat machine and, he like, really you know, a, a, an amazing, like, performer and, like, you know, deceiver and just scapegoat for all this stuff. Like, you know, so. Yep. And like, so, and throughout the pandemic. He mismanaged it so horribly, but was it just, mismanaged or was it perfectly managed Uh, i mean it's hard to think about the covid narrative kind of playing out the way that it did uh without trump in the white house throughout 2020 because his response to it i mean when you really look at it at the end of the day and you know if you're say a person who is a lockdown skeptic or even vaccine skeptic or covid skeptic about any of these things um you know, he kind of embodied more of a skepticism maybe than at various points than any of like, you know, the Democratic governors or Biden or anybody like that. But he still did kind of go along with lockdowns and like the meta narrative. He put Fauci on TV every day. He did Operation Warp Speed to get these mRNA vaccines out that are now have totally somehow flipped political allegiances. It's actually one of the only things that Trump was very gung ho about that now is like not associated with him at all because it would be inconvenient I heard recently that he to like associate said, him with it. Told people to get vaccinated at some rally, and even his own supporters like booed him, uh, <laughs> like which is really something. Because it is interesting. Like a deep fanatical loyalty, like in the people who attend Trump rallies, you would think, but uh, yeah, but I, I think even that has got somehow that's been divorced from him, and I think that now if you hear like Democrats on TV talking about it, they kind of. You know, basically, they they framed the development of the vaccines as like a great achievement of like the military medical industrial complex, essentially. Yeah, and when like, at first you know, it was like the Trump vaccine. Like I remember, like Brooklyn Dad defiant and people like that <laughs> being like, "I won't get a Trump vaccine." You know, right? like right? yeah, that's that's funny. But yeah, I it mean, I think like a real a very vulgar and like ultimately like deranged and stupid like uh, thing that I think like similar to like memes about like you know this is the real pandemic or whatever that I think like kind of actually did hit on something and may even have been, like, a, a shit coat, like, in its own way, like, somehow, is that, like, Breitbart article that people were passing around, and it was ludicrous, and it was funny, like, you know, it, there's a lot of, like, mental gymnastics going around, but I feel like whatever, like, sort of uh, stirred the instinct behind the article, and the premise of it basically was, I don't remember who wrote it, and it doesn't, you know, uh, it doesn't really make any sense the way that it was formulated, but I feel like whatever stirred it in this, in this author, like, uh, you know, there is something real behind it, which is that he was saying, you know, the Democrats are, their, their plan is that, you know, they are trying to make the vaccine seem like, so, you know, they're trying to push it on you and trying to be obnoxious about it because they know that like, you won't get it. Like, they know that if, like, they, you know, do all this vaccine, like, you know, they try to make you get the vaccine and do all these mandates and stuff, they know you won't get it. And the vaccine, you know, is, is actually does save lives. So they're, they want you to not get it and die. Yeah, but I actually, yeah, exactly. It's a trap. Yeah, but I actually feel like there's something, like, not in that formulation, which, of course, is, like, very risible, but the, like, there's something to that, I think. There's some way... That like this politicization of the virus and of the response to it 
like actually does almost seem like weirdly calculated. Like one of like uh, I was mentioning to you before we started recording, like one of the articles that uh, you put into our workflowy was uh, something that like you struck a chord with me because I'd already sort of been thinking in this line, and it was something like imperfect vaccination can enhance virulent pathogens. And basically, it was just about a study they had done with chickens. And this is the summary of it. It says, There is a theoretical expectation that some types of vaccines could prompt the evolution of more virulent, hotter pathogens. This idea follows from the notion that natural selection removes pathogen strains that are so, quote-unquote, hot that they kill their hosts and, therefore, themselves. Vaccines that let the host survive but do not prevent the spread of the pathogen relax this selection, allowing the evolution of hotter pathogens to occur. This type of vaccine is often called a leaky vaccine. When vaccines prevent transmission, as is the case for nearly all vaccines used in humans, this type of evolution towards increased virulence is blocked. But when vaccines leak, allowing at least some pathogen transmission, they could create the ecological conditions that would allow hot strains to emerge and persist. Uh, this article is from 2015, by the way, so it yeah. seems very prescient. But anyway, yep. this theory proved highly controversial when it was first proposed over a decade ago. But here we report experiments with Marek's disease virus and poultry that show that modern commercial leaky vaccines can have precisely this effect. They allow the onward transmission of strange otherwise too lethal to persist. Thus, the use of leaky vaccines can facilitate the evolution of pathogen strains that put unvaccinated hosts at greater risk of severe disease. The future challenge is to identify whether there are other types of vaccines used in animals and humans that might also generate these evolutionary risks. So, you know, I'm not saying that the solution would have been just to have, like, no attempt at vaccination and just, like, let everyone die so that the virus would then be stamped out. Or, like, that there isn't, like, a reasonable hesitancy around the vaccines, especially, like, in certain communities. But that's, like, really, to me, what's sus about it. Because, like, vaccination, the way it breaks down, it is along, like, socioeconomic, like, racial, like, privilege lines, you know? Like, it's interesting how, like, you know, the people who are vaccinated, like, you know, I do think at this point, like, you know, again, I totally understand, like, where the hesitancy comes from. I myself am vaccinated and, like, haven't died or anything happening. I think that... I do, I am kind of inclined to think the vaccine mostly does work to the point that it, like, makes, you know, it makes, if you get the virus, like, you know, it, you'll be, like, safer if you get it and you had the vaccine. But, like, as we know, it doesn't prevent transmission. And yep. when you have a pretty sizable or, like, at least significant portion of the population that will not get vaccinated, which probably would have been the case anyway, but certainly is exacerbated by, like, you know, this bizarre like media scheme that we exist in yeah on both yeah this dialectical thing where you have like maniacs like michael flynn on one side and then like stephen colbert's like vaccine dance on the other you know (laughs) like that creates this perfect storm or like this perfect balance where like you know this could theoretically just keep perpetuating itself somehow where you have the unvaccinated yeah, suffering under these increasingly awful diseases and then people having to get more and more vaccines that, you know, and the, and the virus ultimately just can't go away just because 
we have the perfect balance of each. It becomes endemic, and if you don't sign up to get the to get the jab, then you are marked for potentially yeah, like you're a really second class citizen and dying. And then with all the yeah, rhetoric but, around like, it of like we're running out of beds because of these sick, fucking, selfish, disgusting, like infected worm people that like aren't even people, and basically yeah, like kind of a so- manufacturing of consent in the popular discourse, like definitely on the kind of uh, liberal like pro-science side of can we just like start denying these people care already like can we just do that yeah you know there's kind of this thing where then it to what extent does it become a self-fulfilling prophecy that these people are going to have you know worse health outcomes and die more because they're being seen as these disease vectors that are socially irresponsible therefore they should be at the back of the line yeah. if they go to the emergency I mean, room like and but like people yeah. kind of want that because they feel like these people are bad and you look at a place like australia right now it looks absolutely insane what they're doing and it's hard to wrap my head around as like an american you know how people could go could be kind of gaslit into accepting a non-stop lockdown for almost 20 months and like having drones chasing you down the street if you're not wearing a mask outside yeah (laughs) and and it's also like like another thing that's like i find to be pretty fucked up is the way that like you know, I mean, I definitely don't love wearing a mask, so I appreciate that you don't have to wear a mask, like, you know, everywhere you go these days so much, or, like, some places have Here to relax that. Well, one thing that I noticed, and maybe you noticed that there as well, is that, like, people in, like, serving roles or, like, workers, like, are more forced to wear it. And, like, you can actually yeah. see the visible class distinction. Yeah, like look at when, the Met Gala. The Met Gala, everybody yeah, from example. AOC and her Bronfman friend yeah, on no, 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 down. Yeah, wearing it, right. Yeah, yeah, and the help was wearing the mask. Well, yeah, they always have to. Like, you know, it, for instance, like in a Starbucks or something, you know, uh, not that you should go to the Zionist entity, but <laughs> like, uh, like if you go to Starbucks like Starbucks a demon. Yeah, origin. anytime you go to a place like that, um, you uh, like we'll see that they they have to all wear masks but you don't necessarily yeah. have to if you're like going to a coffee shop 7-eleven something like that you know like yeah anything. and now uh, they they all have to get vaccines as well for the most part um if you work for a large corporation even if you work for, i know people who work from home completely that never go to an office still being required to get a vaccination um just like just because i mean there's not even really like a a really clear epidemiological kind of advantage except in the sense that like you're gonna broadly like force people i won't even say nudge like really shove people into getting it or else they'll lose their jobs but in terms of like the risk to a company um sure there maybe there are some kind of businesses where everyone's in close contact and poor ventilation and it'd be bad but it's like if you're working at home in front of your computer like are you are we are you really doing more of your part like in especially if you avoid kind of exposing it and spreading it's just very it's odd that they take in such a hard direction after basically uh promising throughout the first half of the year that they would never do this (laughs) like they would never do this like like biden is on the record so many times being like no 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 vaccine mandates no 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 no, that that that, that's not going to be a thing and And then they just like they seem to have kind of panicked in the summer yeah. Oh, I mean, I think that, like, the thing is, yeah, there's, like, people are very intractable. And, like, I, I don't know, personally for myself, like, I'm kind of, like, I don't know, like I said, I'm, like, not super, like, into the idea that the vaccine itself is dangerous. I feel like that's, like, a little bit of a psyop. But 
before you uh, get upset at me for saying the vaccine isn't dangerous, <laughs> what I think is dangerous is like it's very convenient how like people at this point have like a social consciousness, like to an extent where I mean, like that's a great exaggeration what I just made, like or what I'm in the process of making, which is to say that like you know, especially uh, liberals in America are like kind of a little bit more vigilant about like uh, nursing like extreme bigotries or dehumanizing people, but like yeah. we found like the perfect thing that like enables that you know like literally to think of people as like disease carrying like subhumans like you know and yeah there's no empathy because the way that it is done is that it aligns perfectly with this like very strident politicization yeah it's like a a total pincer and a total trap where you don't want the vaccine you're a trump supporter it's outrageous that there should be like you know well i mean it's at least foolish that you would expect that they would like anyone who was paying any attention, like, you know how it's going to break down. And with the mandates, Mm -hmm. like, you know, that, I mean, that's the thing where I feel like, yeah, I mean, the Breitbart guy, like he might not be right about like the sort of like 4d chess conscious kind of like uh, thing where we're trying to necessarily kill people. But I mean, I don't know, like, eh, but, uh, At a certain you, know, po- you know, there's a lot, I mean, uh, yeah, well, and I've, we'll get into it later because there's a lot of, um, factors that could kind of, uh, change how we have this conversation in terms of talking about what is this virus and where did it come from? Because yeah. then if you start to go down that rabbit hole and you find out that it maybe didn't come from a Wuhan wet market where like a bat bit a pangolin that bit a, a ferret badger and then sneezed on somebody which has never been proven, <laughs> um, then you do have to start to wonder about the particularities maybe of like who this virus kind of targets. I mean, you know, it, it's like deeply yeah. circumstantial to point out, but it goes after sick and elderly people pretty much like overwhelmingly. Yes. And it doesn't seem to have a specific racial bias only in so far as there were like racially mediated discrepancies and inequalities in our societies. Well, in terms of who has access to the vaccine and who gets it. And also all- therapeutics and also therapeutics too, because I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, we, I don't even know if we need to get into the I word and talk about horse paste, you know, Oh, ivermectin. Uh, I mean, a fucking like, generic drug that a guy that won the fucking Nobel prize for discovering. Nobel prize winning like, for humans. Nobel yeah. prize winning for humans. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't, you know, I'm not saying that like it doesn't work at all or like whatever. Like I don't, I don't know. But my point only is that like in terms of access to the vaccine and yeah, sure. Whatever. Ivermectin, if that. Or, or not uh, even ivermectin, you know. just other therapeutics in general like early prevention like competent hospital care that is good and helpful and not you know like sticking you on a ventilator after five seconds and then just like leaving you to rot or um i don't know even remdesivir which our our boy peter dashik was absolutely boasting about last year is like the best therapeutic ever that was discovered as a result of his research um and actually i think has ties to i want to say gilead health um, a, wow. a biotech a company. Mm, wow. I know, Gilead. right? Not a good, not a good Excuse name. Me? I think they're also the creators of PrEP, the HIV prophylactic drug. But mm. um, there, I think Bill Gates is heavily invested in Gilead. Um, maybe I'll, I might get a Pinocchio for that, but I'm pretty sure it's true. And so, and actually, I, I've seen stuff more recently. Remdesivir is one of those kind of generic drugs. Actually, I don't know if it's generic, but that has been widely given out um, to hospitals in the U.S. But I guess in previous studies before the COVID era when they were using it, it has a lot of like really bad side effects and it's actually not 
a totally, totally safe. It's probably a lot more dangerous than ivermectin, basically, from a few things I read about, like, maybe causing, like, renal failure, like, attacking the kid, like, really toxic for the kidneys and other shit like that. So it just, it goes to show you that, you know, without putting too fine of a point on anything, that there's a real breakdown in even the most basic like information about like what fucking works, what doesn't work, like how good is this vaccine? Like the, the, the goalposts have shifted so many times just in this last year about all of that shit. And there's so many conflicts of interest that are going uh, unexamined by like the mainstream press. And then even to the extent that they get brought up on like Tucker or something, they immediately get shit coded and they get spun around and like, this is why China's behind it, which I'm not. Yeah. Um, or like, yeah, like the, I mean, Tucker basically it's, I mean, it's a perfect example, you know, I mean, libs will point this out, but I don't think they're necessarily wrong. Like Tucker and Dave Rubin, all those fools are absolutely vaccinated. I mean, they have to be to work at Fox, you yeah. know, like they're vaccinated, but they do not encourage their, their listeners uh, to get it. They tell them like not to be. And, well, you know, they, they I, stoked a lot of skepticism. I find yeah. that to be a little bit sus. Like, you know, I'm not like saying that. I mean, I fully understand why people like are suspicious. And I think we'll get de- more deeply into like all the sus connections going on here. But I find it sus when you have like Michael Flynn, like ranting and raving about the sevenfold archangels and sevenfold points of light. <laughs> and, you know, the IM network, like telling people that like they're putting the vaccine in your salad dressing, you know, it's going to make you lose your soul or something. And like, like oh, how is that? Yeah. How can convenient that you know like oh well now we have like these people who are just dug in and we have to do a vaccine mandate we have to make people show their papers you know like it just works out perfectly like yeah it's just yeah. it, it really is a sinister and like dialectic. then you have like a subhuman population that like they're ruining everything we everything is justified to stop them and like you know they can just and they won't like the more you push like the more they'll be dug in because of the way that everything is worked out. Uh, yeah, I find that yeah. to be sus. Uh, no, you know? it is sus. Yeah. It is sus. And I, I think even if it's not in Congress, because I think we we tend to lump things like kind of together. Like I think this is a tendency of like say if you're exploring the origins of COVID and maybe you're hypothesizing that it was created in a lab, that it wasn't zoonotic in origin, and or it was edited. It was a zoonotic virus that was you know, edited in a, in a lab and then got out somehow, even if you believe that it was like deliberately let out of a lab somehow, um, then it kind of like follows that you're very skeptical about the effectiveness of the vaccine. And I might, I can definitely like see that, that line of thinking and I don't necessarily disagree with it, but I think it's interesting to also look at the possibility that if this thing was created, then the cure for it that they're rolling out to millions of people could be reasonably effective and like not it's like it's not going to kill everybody it's not even if the like this this was a pandemic the vaccine it doesn't necessarily follow that the vaccine itself is go- is like a trap to kill everybody or something like no, that. No, that doesn't actually now, make I, any sense, really. Well, it does, it does, it, but it, but it does kind of follow a logic that if you want to get people into the system of like you're going to get regular shots in the future, you're going to carry around like a, a health passport on your phone or proof of vaccination to get to participate in social and economic life in this country and really in most of the countries in the world, then you're going to get this thing that. Uh, prevents you from getting killed by this virus. Now, of course, there could be, I think there are um, side effects. And I think it's like, it 
I don't know, in the long run, I feel like it doesn't help like pro vaccine advocates to like completely sweep it under the rug. I think that things like myocarditis and blood clots, I've known people that young, healthy people that got blood clots from the J and J vaccine personally. And, you know, the doctor wouldn't say like literally that it was caused by the, the vaccine, but it happened like a week and a half after. And you don't mm-hmm. usually get blood clots when you're like 32 But anyways, nonetheless, like, I think it does seem to be now that we, well, we're basically the main experimental trial population, uh, the people that, like, got it so far. And while I think there probably are elevated VAERS reports and, like, there's a lot of stuff that was, like, not fully vetted um, by nature of, like, this all being done in one year, et cetera, there's totally fair criticisms to make, but... I think also like most people, almost everybody in my life that I know that's gotten the vaccine has not had like yeah. them drop dead or anything no. like that. And, and like I, nobody, I nobody's gotten yeah. COVID and like ended up in the hospital, though I have heard a few anecdotal like friend of a friend of a friend kind of stories about like middle aged people that were vaccinated, like going into the hospital with bad COVID with like a breakthrough case. But still, I think it seems yeah, I mean, like relatively definitely- rare. And it does protect you. So then it does beg the question of then, you know, especially the leaky vaccine thing, uh, if if there perhaps is any validity to it. Because this sounds like the mRNA vaccine sound like the perfect type of leaky vaccine to cause what this 2015 paper was talking about. Like, I'm not a virologist, but it just sounds I've heard a few scientists since COVID make this argument that like the type of vaccines they're deploying that really don't prevent transmission at all kind of do create like a dangerous like potential breeding ground to optimize this virus because it's bumping up against like a you know a vaccinated person's immune system but it's not completely being blocked out of their body and it can still kind of like you know uh, duplicate and then spread to somebody else so it creates almost like a challenge ground like a proving ground for it to, to amp itself up and become more pathogenic and like more virulent and yes. all this other stuff this so then is- it makes it more like the vaccinated population is incubating like say maybe the delta variant though i think maybe the delta came around too early for that to really be a thing and it came out of india but in the future, like going into the next, you know, flu season this year and all that stuff with a huge vaccinated population, it's hypoth- it sounds hypothetically possible that vaccinated people could basically be an incubator for a more virulent strain of COVID, which is then probably, probably not going to kill all the vaccinated people. But, it, but if that unvaccinated people catch it, who knows? Like, maybe you get a yes. kind of... and if you think about <clears> it from <throat> the point of view of, like, if you're saying, like, oh, it's a pandemic, the people who would be planning the demic, like, the people that they would want to die, like, this is where, like, you know, Alex Jones will be like, uh, I feel so bad for these, you know, these brainwashed, these brainwashed communists, like, they, you know, they obey Bill Gates, and then they're, they're all going to die, folks. You know, like, that doesn't <laughs> make any sense. That. Like, why they're, would Bill Gates yeah. want his slaves, his obedient slaves, to die? Like, no, yeah. he wants the patriots to die. Like, and that is who I think will be the ones who die. But like, you know, it's not just like the MAGA people in the United States, it's the Palestinians, you know, like it's people Mm -hmm. like that who aren't vaccinated. Yeah, exactly. has so, such a low vaccination rate. It's like poor countries in South America. It's the global South. It's like the poor. And then in America, it's like the deplorables who by choice, but also a lot of like, 
we shouldn't over centralize the vaccine hesitant population to be a bunch of white like MAGA people because exactly. there's a lot of yeah. just like no. working and class people, a lot of like African Americans who, like, for very good like, reason, redditors you know? or like fools who are like you know uh, going in for Michael Flynn or whatever. Like some people just simply don't have access or don't have like the information or just like don't prioritize it for some reason. It's not all like the ideological stuff, but that I feel like you know just puts you like over the top a little bit. That's just like the icing on the cake to make it like really. You know, yeah, but I want to emphasize even even and maybe you don't want to call it ideological, but like there even are people that are not MAGA that that like do not want to get the they could get the vaccine. No, yeah, if they and want there's to, legitimate they reasons they just don't like, want to get because it because, yeah. as you said, it, we are uh, like it's, uh, it's just a fact that like we're a trial population and people like have a visceral aversion to that, which makes perfect sense, especially from like communities that have been subjected to that with like very sinister results such as the black community you know in the yep. united states like that's exactly very, quite understandable like so very understandable you know, and uh, anybody like the idea that you would prevent people from opting out of basically being what is essential and sure it might be worth it it might still be for the greater good but basically it's like a mass trial operation of rolling out this like new type of vaccine the idea that you would ban people effectively from opting out of that if for whatever reason especially when if you take into account the people that got covid in the past year and a half and don't have the vaccine they still have immunity but for some reason america the united states does not count those people at all now there are countries in europe that count it there are countries, you know, in Asia and stuff that were if you show that you've had a positive COVID test in the last like year, you're considered immune, which makes like immunological sense. <laughs> like that's yeah. actual science. But, you know, when you go on TV, you see all these like spooky ass doctors who are just like, oh, well, you know, the studies are incomplete and we actually don't know like how good your immunity is if, you know, I don't know how good your antibodies are. And you really should just like fuck that's that. It doesn't count. Uh, go get vaccinated. Too. But yeah, well, yeah like, it's true of the vaccine as well. So we don't them, know. But, but but if you take that chunk of people, that's actually a significant chunk of people that have had it that aren't vaccinated. That probably cuts like if you take the chunk of what is it? 40 percent of the population is kind of not vaccinated in the United States right now. It might be as many as half of those people have had covid. So you really are talking about like maybe at, at most like 25 percent probably more like 20 percent of people who have never gotten covid and are not vaccinated which is like a pretty small slice of the population overall and i remember there used to be all this talk about herd immunity in the, earlier in the year where we got to get the herd immunity fauci would yeah. always say and the numbers they were always throwing out were like i think when we get to like 80 percent we'll probably be good well, now it's like if you do throw in like the people that have already had it, we probably are at about 80 percent. But they're acting like, oh, like, no, we have to get like 99 percent of people vaccinated now, which just doesn't feel like that's that makes sense. Like, I don't think you I don't know. It just feels like but it feels like the, the point is more to sign up to get people to buy in to this new paradigm and i think you see it with the boosters now that this is going to be like a flu shot thing for maybe i don't know a decade maybe the rest of our lives where they're going to be pressuring people encouraging people just like they started doing the flu shots 10 years ago to just get like whatever the updated software of the mrna vaccine is like twice a year or whatever and i mean there's so many 
I mean, just sinister motivations like, to doing that. Vaccine mandate is like a huge. Like, has there ever been anything like that in American history? I don't think so. Like, it seems there very were odd. localized. There were localized mandates, I think, in various outbreaks in like the early twentieth century, when like all the prominent scientists in the country were eugenicists. <laughs> um, but no, I think that um, there there were things like. I think there were vaccine mandates in like working towns and stuff and like, you know, I don't know, Lowell, Massachusetts or like in San Francisco, maybe during the flu. Pan- I, I don't know. They didn't have a flu vaccine, though. Never mind. I think for like smallpox and a couple other things like that, there were like localizers, but there's never been like a federal nationwide like ev- it would be like if you I feel lived like in, in a this, city like, or worked at a factory like surveillance like panopticon era, like it just like is odd and like almost feels like. Yeah, it just it feels very like a very strange precedent that had a mandate. But again, like I can understand why people are led along into feeling that it's necessary because, yeah, I mean, that would be I don't think that it will, honestly, like or, you know, I'm very skeptical that it will based on the way like all the promise solutions so far have panned out. But and because, you know, people, the more you push, the more that like many will resist. But, you know, I think that it's it definitely seems to have like. Uh, a weird precedent and I don't think that it will it will solve the problem but I, I I'm not sure like you know I, I can definitely understand how it's presented as the only possible solution because yeah you know without it like it will just go on I think it will go on with it too but either way uh, I don't think that it, well I think that's work. the thing now that people are saying we have to prepare for I, I, I turned on CNN this morning just to see what the uh the, the <laughs> old propaganda box was saying what the old world service saying and uh, now they're kind of back towards, and this is maybe even part of like the manipulation. This is part of like the program is the bouncing back and forth between optimism and despair. Like every other, like if you are plugged into like MSNBC or CNN in particular, or like NPR, like you were just bouncing, you were being bounced back and forth between absolute panic and then like this optimism, like, hey, people are getting vaccinated, it's over. So now after a couple months, of absolutely freaking out after we had supposedly like conquered the virus, like mission accomplished on July 4th. Uh, now the things are going down again. So now everyone's like, Oh, it looks like maybe the pandemic is finally behind us, which, you know, to say that like right on the eve of like the winter flu season feels like in two months, we're going to be back in some kind of like, I mean, running I just got hair like, on fire sick mode. for the first time since the pandemic. I was sick during our Borman episode. Uh, yes, I remember that. On, you were I'm sick ba- for like a week and a half, right? I'm bouncing back. Not for a week and a half. Um, I thought like, you were sniffly uh, in the half previous a week. Half. Oh, yeah. I was, I think that was allergies, though. Uh, yeah, I was sniffly for Lisa's interview, but mm. that was, that was just allergies because so we had gone out uh, and it was like a, uh, you know, an allergy heavy day, but. Then I actually did get a cold. Uh, I thought that was allergies when we were recording, but it turned out to be a cold that I had for several days. So and it wasn't yeah, it's COVID. That time of year. Did you test it? As far as I know, it wasn't COVID, but I wasn't tested. And I don't plan on getting tested because, like you know, I've done, I've done my part. Uh, you know, I'm doing my part. <laughs> well, uh, look at it this way: if you did, you got your booster. So you, you know, yeah, it's all good. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. And uh, but I mean it. It is. For, I do feel like we're not going to exit this paradigm because the reason for it, like the, it's way. It's just like nine eleven. Putting aside, you know who who did it. Uh, it was so damn useful for the people in power, the people in the driver's seat, that they can't throw this ring into the fires of Mount Doom. They can't let it go. 
like they they are gonna keep um, they're gonna keep chugging, and even the people that like we'll we'll probably talk about uh, start really getting into in the second hour are who you know you could make a decent uh, circumstantial argument that they might have caused this pandemic. Literally, those people are all failing upwards and are getting yeah. more money and more media attention. Doctor Fauci is like a god now on to like half the country and it's amazing that, that people aren't more like sick of in him in general it's just occasions the like a huge upward transfer of wealth as everyone knows and it is an incontestable fact yeah um, absolutely absolutely but, all this emergency just like after 9-11 when you know the the stock market computers were knocked out and you know the the fed could the fed loves a crisis where it can just make the money printer go burr you know and well, yeah. uh, they mean, definitely that, did that you know, I, well, I think that it is like I think that the the parallel that kind of occurred to us in our nine eleven episode is still pretty trenchant. Uh, our recent nine eleven episode is still pretty trenchant because like it is kind of like it does sort of the whole the aspect of the the unvaccinated and everything like you know and the the people who are to blame who generally that's transposed into like you know the sort of uh, opposing political side uh, of the sort of issue of vaccination or the pandemic in general that like really does resemble the like you know the figure of like the the hook nose evil uh you know charlie Hebdo muslim you know who's like <laughs> just a terrorist and he's got a scimitar you know and like or the secret communist that we talked about in our well, paul yeah. robson episode like mm-hmm. it's spraying his infected speech and ideas yes. to crowds mm-hmm. of people and, and infecting yeah, and anything them. is justified you know preemptively attacking like him if he's talking like preemptive violence against him like is justified you know yep. uh, the same thing like you know uh them saying like them believing this that they deserve to be nuked or something you know like that like it's amazing that that has been something that people are able to kind of like replicate and fall into again you know like there's just new more and more new ways to like fall into this this bizarre trap that makes so much justifiable and like yep. you know and yeah whatever happens think, these days i think yeah this i mean will it's not up. it's isn't an exact matchup but i would encourage people who like you know have like the sort of uh, sensibilities uh, like the sort of liberal sensibilities and who would think like that they would never like or who would like you know be appalled at the idea of like the bigotry towards muslims that happened after 9-11 like to consider that because of course it's not a perfect analog like, you know, there's other, but I think that in many ways, like it, and it's very interesting to think about how, like, how, how people who are kind of have like their defenses up against that kind of thinking, like are able to fall into it under certain circumstances. There are certain yes. like little things that make those kind of patterns emerge. And like, you know, I'm not saying that one has to fully like change one's mind or that even that the people after 9-11 who didn't like Muslims like had to decide to like Muslims like or, you know, love Muslims or convert to Islam. I mean, I am saying that, but, you know, <laughs> like, uh, it, it, but no, uh, I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm saying there are certain patterns. There's certain like ways of thinking where like certain horizons are crossed that are bad, you know, and that I think oh, that yeah. when, we, when we're yeah. clear headed and we're in the aftermath then we can see how they were bad, but in the heat of it, we usually can't. We can't. We can't. And I think, again, that's why Trump, the presence of Trump, and even the specter of him today is, like, so useful for to, to stoke that type of thinking. Um, I remember, I think maybe I, I said it recently on some episode, but I was reflecting on how 
like in Los Angeles throughout most of 2020, maybe just because it wasn't hit like that hard. But like, you know, I live in a pretty lib part of pretty lib city. And I felt like I never really saw people like walking around by themselves wearing masks outside. And then it w- there was like a convergence in December and January where the cases actually were spiking in Los Angeles and, it, and everything was shut down again and it was very grim. But I noticed like this big jump after January 6th and after like the inauguration of Biden. So like by the at the end of January, like everybody was masked up like they're driving around in their cars by themselves the windows up wearing a mask <laughs> and everyone just like really tense and like terrified and i just like i don't know intuitively i felt like there was a weird convergence of the threat of like the maga hordes like storming the capital and like people spreading the virus like running rampant spreading the virus particularly evil maga people spreading the virus and I feel like that really stuck for like a big chunk of the year. And and now it, and then it kind of like mutated again after the vaccination drive happened. But then like the cases started going up where anybody that wasn't vaccinated, it's immediately assumed to be like a specific political statement. Like it is a it's supposed to be representative of like a certain worldview of irrationality and believing in conspiracy theories, which it's really interesting when when we get into like Peter Daszak and stuff um, and other people around him and Fauci and just the overall like if you turn on every day on, on CNN like they're railing against specifically conspiracy theories dangerous baseless conspiracy theories and that has been a theme really like from the very beginning of the pandemic that was just a litany of like don't believe these conspiracy theories trump is pushing conspiracy like conspiracy theories were so heavily identified with trump yeah and his supporters that there was no room on the left to basically talk about something that wasn't confirmed by like npr and cnn and everybody else and all the experts and fauci and all these people yeah and like as we can as i think we start to see like in as we move into the subject the that consensus like was kind of it was it was manufactured you know like it wasn't like a natural (laughs) conclusion like people made like a calculated decision to like you know circle the wagons around the idea that it was zoonotic you know that it was naturally occurring when really like that actually like the the lab leak at the very least like the accidental lab leak cannot be ruled out but the only reason why like and i think that even i want to even say like biden's white house like has kind of like acknowledged or like said like we got to kind of look into this or something but you know i know they did they did look into it and they came back like inconclusive yeah i think this summer like yeah it's not really yeah it can't really be ruled out because there are big missing pieces the main missing piece is like people can't actually find like what the direct ancestor of covid is and Mm -hmm. they're just like very unusual features that it has as a virus again like as you said you're not a virologist i'm not a virologist so and you know we've definitely both made like you know statements about like various scientific disciplines that people have later come to me and been like uh actually like that's wildly wrong so hopefully you know if you're a virologist or an epidemiologist listening to this like you know you're you'll be tolerant but well we are as uh yeah as the uh as the trillbillies were recently accused of doing we're playing fast and loose with virology 
Yeah. And, um, but it turns out maybe we were like, you know, it's one thing to metaphorically, rhetorically play fast to lose. The, it's another thing to actually go yes, to a lab and true. play fast and lose they virology. They fast and loose. They definitely played fast and loose. I'm like really like, yeah, the, you know, like, I, I mean, as I've said, like, I'm definitely not like uh, super down like the, the rabbit hole of like, you know, uh, the Alex Jones type of thing. Like, Fauci put like this in the vaccine. Like, it's going to take us all, folks. Like, but... <laughs> you know, I like I definitely am like very sussed out by the stuff around the WIV, like the the Wuhan Institute of Virology and like the NIH grants and all that stuff. Like it's kind it's, of mind blowing. It blew it, my mind the last few weeks reading yeah. about it. And just that like Vanity stuff. Fair article like was really, you know, and I read like a lot of the, you know, I'm trying to do my due diligence. Like I read the pushback and stuff, but what I found like in a lot of the pushback articles, like they were all like, well, you know yeah, we can't really rule this out. And COVID does have these weird features. Like mostly what they were, what they established was like, you know, the zoonotic explanation is still possible, which sure. Yeah. But the alternative is also possible. But it gets, it gets referred to and everyone acts upon the assumption that the zoonotic theory is like validated and probably the correct one. And they act with great hostility towards anybody. I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's what we need to get into first is like how did that consensus like come about? Because like the like the sort of the WHO like report of like that's extremely unlikely, that conclusion like that's so like kind of like fabricated and like deliberately kind Honestly, of Honestly, it's like a magic virus theory. It's like, well, the virus like went like this and like bounced off a pangolin and then like you know went through the wet market and then it it, it ricocheted yeah, which, like, off a never, parrot. Doesn't and then, actually like sell bat meat or anything at all. Yeah. Like, you like know, the best thing yeah. Peter Dasha could say, uh and and we'll get into this, but of course, you know, um he was on the WHO investigative team that was selected to go and uh, go to Wuhan and figure it out and like his big bombshell was that you know that convinced him was that they found a few frozen mammals in like a freezer in Wuhan that I think were um ferret badgers and which are a ferret badger a ferret badger is like a kind of ferret that um I guess like all ferrets similar to a badger well, I, I, I don't know if it's more of a, bear, a badger or more of a ferret. I, I'm not really sure. Oh, ferret, but hyphen, badger. It is an animal. Uh, yeah, and, and it, it, I think, you know, we'll get into the people in experiments with ferrets. I feel bad and, they got COVID. Well, no, they didn't have COVID. That's the thing. They didn't have COVID. No, he found a bunch of carcasses and like four of them and he tested them for COVID and they all tested negative. But he's like, but, you know, we only tested a few and there could have been more. There could have been one that did. And it's like, okay, so you found like, also like you went there like a year later, like somebody could have just thrown a ferret like in a freezer. Like, like who's to say that they literally like like, lock it down like a crime scene? The virus, like that is the ancestor of COVID or like the progenitor of COVID. Like then they haven't found anything. You just found like the idea that there's like a ferret and like that people yeah. could have gotten it from a ferret like yeah sure yeah. like that's that's the all they theory. have is a hypothesis like yeah you don't need to show me a ferret in a freezer so that could have happened like you know yeah, a yeah. could have bitten someone like i don't well, know I think like, the whatever. problem was that it's come out subsequently and this was you know very misreported early on um that the dab market did not sell bats or pangolins yeah. or a lot of the other animals that they thought like were similar enough to humans that they could have carried it so it's like he finally found like like they didn't really even 
sell mammals like openly. It was maybe like an under the table kind of thing. And so he was able to find the frozen carcasses of like a few little ferret mammals and was like, aha, like see, but it's like, mm, not really <laughs> like, you know, like that's, you, you still have a lot of leaps to go through to actually get to basically, you know, what, and he, and he also equally says that, well, it's totally possible it jumped to humans before in some other part of China. And then like somebody went to the Wuhan wet market and just started spreading it there, I which mean, is actually the same kind of argument that people make about, if it came from the lab, which uh, well, one of the like Wuhan labs Well, it's like ridiculous that like all the attention right the is street. on this like wet market and not, yeah, on the virology lab that works on bad coronaviruses. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, you know, like, like what okay. the fuck? Yeah, um, you know, exactly. Like, yeah, one of the, like, one of the okay, facilities yeah, is like, all right, there's a wet yeah. market. Like, th- I get it. But like, there's also like a fucking virology lab that which studies more likely? like this which exact more likely? shit. Like, you know, yeah. Like, like one, one place doesn't have bats. Uh, the other one has bats that specifically have all the coronaviruses that you've dug out of caves for the last 10 years in like a secure facility that people at the state department were worried like didn't have adequate safety procedures according to documents uh leaked to the washington post and so it's like really you kind of do have to step back and just think about this like openly and like logically like like, where is it more likely to have come out of? And, of course, like, there's probably a whole story if it did come out of the Wuhan lab. And, of course, that's politically explosive. And, of course, like, that could be twisted into, like, this, uh, like, very dangerous kind of situation where it's like, oh, China did it. But as we'll get into, the thing that even a lot of the people exposing the Wuhan lab, I think now is just starting to scratch the surface but even a lot of these like right wing people, because of course it's about the China virus, right? Yeah. Like the CCP virus, as Bannon would say. And they believe this is like a deliberate bioweapon, a takedown Trump and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, they neglect to mention that one of the main funders of the bat coronavirus research in the Wuhan lab was this US nonprofit called EcoHealth Alliance, which as uh, we will get into, received tens of millions of dollars from the Pentagon, specifically DARPA, and USAID, which is one of the most common uh, kind of civil front organizations for CIA yeah, activities. In addition abroad. to just the NIH, which is, you know, and like the NIH. intercept documents. Yeah. It yeah. Didn't, yeah. I mean, this is like uh, not like uh, really damning at all, but uh, not not a super uh, great coincidence that like the amount of money they got from the NIH for their first year of research was like $666,000. Like, really? Yeah. yeah. No, I didn't, didn't see, see that. that? Yeah. Oh my yeah, god! Sus. Yeah, <laughs> like not, not not a good look. Um, yeah, <sighs> these people are sick, um, yeah, folks. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I don't want to be negative, but that's <laughs> well, yeah, family. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, but it was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. I think it was forty something million dollars from the Pentagon and something like sixty or seventy million dollars from USAID, which comprised more than half of their funding, which is not publicly advertised but if you look into their like financial disclosure documents you could find these the, the receipts from this grant money and so basically like EcoHealth in a nutshell was a private entity where Peter Dashak um, was the president and they would get paid by the government and then distribute grants and, and funding to scientists in labs and so, like, they were basically the conduit of funding a, a good chunk of this research in Wuhan. Um, yeah, 
Yes. And then, like, you know, like, yeah, as you said, like, Peter Daszak gets invited to, like, go and weigh in on that, like, uh, you know, very influential sort of analysis of the possible origins of the virus. Like, uh, with the, I think it was with the WHO. Um, yeah, WHO, um, which is uh, sus in its own way. Um, yeah, this is, and uh, very yeah. big Alan Dulles on the Warren Commission energy. Like, yeah. let's get this guy to investigate. The guy who would have, like, the <laughs> like one of the prime suspects uh, being involved in this. Let's put him on the investigative panel. Yeah, I mean, this, uh, this is from that Vanity Fair article, which I mentioned, which is pretty good. It's, like, the fight to uncover COVID's origins. I think it's just called the lab leak theory, and that's the... The subtitles inside the fight to uncover COVID 19's origins. And, like, you know, a lot is made of like the complicity of China, which isn't like nil in this, but like, you no. know, the Peter Daszak stuff like comes through clearly in this section. Uh, it says, uh, in early July, the World Health Organization invited the U.S. government to recommend experts for a fact-finding mission to Wuhan, a sign of progress in the long-delayed probe of COVID-19's origins. Questions about the WHO's independence from China, the country's sec- secrecy, and the raging, raging pandemic had turned the anticipated mission into a minefield of international grudges and suspicion. Within weeks, the U.S. government submitted three names to the WHO. An FDA veterinarian, a CDC epidemiologist, and an NIAID virologist. None were chosen. Instead, only one representative from the U.S. made the cut, Peter Daszak. Wow. It had been evidence from the start that China would control who would come and what they could see. In July, when the WHO sent member countries a draft of the terms governing the mission, the PDF document was titled CHN and WHO Agreed Final Version, suggesting that China had pre-approved its contents. Part of the fault lay with the Trump administration, which had failed to counter China's control over the scope of the mission when it was being hammered out two months earlier uh, did they fail or did they not care? The resolution forged to the World Health Assembly called not for a full inquiry into the origins of the pandemic, but instead for a mission to identify the zoonotic source of the virus. The natural origin <laughs> hypothesis was baked into the enterprise. Yeah. It was a huge difference that only the Chinese understood, said Jamie Metzl. While the administration was huffing and puffing, some really important things were happening around the WHO and the U.S. didn't have a voice. So there we go. Like they were huffing and puffing like they didn't like want that like that you know but anyway like that Hmm. that's not really what uh i don't think that's necessarily true but anyway so uh on january 14th 2021 dasak and 12 other international experts arrived in wuhan to join 17 chinese experts and an entourage of government minders they spent two weeks of the month-long mission quarantine in their hotel rooms the remaining (laughs) two-week inquiry was more propaganda than probe complete with a visit to an exhibit extolling president xi's leadership the team (laughs) saw almost no raw data only the chinese government analysis of it uh, we're about to get to the absolute worst part. They paid one visit to the Wuhan Institute of Virology where they met with Shi Zongli as recounted in an annex to the mission report. One obvious demand would have been access to the WIV's database of some 22,000 virus samples and sequences, which had been taken offline. At oh. an event convened by a London organization on March 10th, Daszak was asked whether the group had made such a request. He said there was no need. Shi Zongli had stated that the WVI took the database due to, uh, down due to hacking attempts during the pandemic. Absolutely reasonable, Dazak said. And wow. we did not ask to see the data. As you know, while this work has been conducted with EcoHealth Alliance, we do basically know what's in those databases. There's no evidence of viruses closer to SARS-CoV-2 than <laughs> rat TG, uh, sorry, rat G13 in those databases. Simple as that. In fact, the database had been taken offline on September 12, 2019, three months before the official start of the pandemic. No. A detail uncovered by up. Giles Dimanuf and two of his drastic colleagues. 
Um, it was taken down as a result of an alleged hacking attempt in September 2019. Well, they said that it was, well, Shizong Lee, the bat lady, the hero, yeah. uh, said that it was d- during the pandemic, you know, the, the anti-science alliance hacked her. But really, they were taken down, like, before the pandemic. For okay, so they he, so he was lying. Yeah, he was lying. Or, or she was, or she, she was lying. She and was lying. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, she was lying, and it seems like he lied too. And he didn't even ask to see the data because he was like, well, you know, it's all of this was done with Eco Health Alliance, so I already know what's in the databases, and trust me, like there's nothing in there. Trust him. Why don't you yeah. trust him? Yeah, actually, Xi Jinping um, was funded. A lot of her bat coronavirus research was directly funded by. Eco Health Alliance, and she has like yeah. a long-standing relationship with Peter Daszak, yeah, and also she's Dr. Like a, Ralph Barrick, and these other right. characters. She's a very interesting figure. I read like a New York Times article about her actually, and it's it's weird because yeah, she's like a uh, you know a big hero in China. She's even the hero like of the pandemic. You know, she's really held up as like this very you know great patriotic figure, like and a brilliant scientist, which I'm yeah. sure she is in many ways. But like for one. Uh, it seems like she knows a lot more about like what how this where this virus came from than she lets on, and also like yeah. she's sort of a weird international figure as well. Like she has gotten a lot of funding from U.S. agencies, and also like she's weirdly like not a member of the Communist Party, which is hmm. like very unusual for like someone in her position, like basically a celebrity yeah. and like a patriotic hero in China. So that like weird. that kind of allows her like a little bit more like you know international status you know as as she himself I not she's only as a president she says you know science has no borders but it does have a motherland you know uh <laughs> but uh anyway so yeah of course oh, they boy. eventually like uh after two weeks of fact finding the international experts concluded their mission by voting with a show of hands on which origin scenario seemed the most probable with the chinese experts there direct transmission from bat to human possible to likely transmission through an intermediate animal likely to very likely transmission through frozen frozen food possible transmission through a laboratory incident extremely unlikely oh, and then okay. media the outlets closed. around the world just reported that as like the conclusion you know uh amazing yeah. we love science we yes, fu- we farking you. love science it's so great um it can never be political or politicized it's just pure as the dripping snow yes yeah okay thank you, um <laughs> thank you science inside the story with scott pelly i was thinking about stories that we might do for 60 minutes around the pandemic of course and and one of the stories that had interested me for years was where did these viruses come from so I asked one of my producers, Ashley Beely, I said, let's do a story about the origin of the virus. Go find some people who know about this. What do we know about the current coronavirus? Not a lot, to be honest. I mean, we know it's very similar to SARS, but it is different. So she comes back with an interview for me with a man named Peter Daszak. And I thought, wow, oh, that name seems familiar. Of course, it was the same Peter Bashak I had done the story with for 60 Minutes 17 years ago. Well, back in 2003, we were with Peter Daszak and his virus hunters. We sailed in a small boat from Malaysia to a tiny island off the coast. There was an outbreak of a new virus that at the time was called the Nipah virus. And Peter Daszak and the rest of his team had gone to Malaysia to try to figure out why people were suddenly being infected. And it turned into a fascinating 
detective story. They realized that the people who were infected were all pig farmers, and they discovered that the pigs had the virus. But then the question became, how did the pigs get it? So now, we've talked a lot about the meta stuff, but let's get into the real meat here of the information that some of it came out earlier, but really we've gotten some whistleblower documents in the last month about the origin of COVID-19 and particularly the potential role that this group that we mentioned before, EcoHealth Alliance, may have played in it. Now, of course, there's no smoking gun per se, but the documents that were released were very, very interesting. So they came out via this group called Drastic Research, and their information, I guess, was, it seems it was verified by Newsweek, which ran a few articles about it. I don't know why Newsweek, I think The Intercept maybe also ran something about it. Yeah. And I'm not sure exactly, like I tried to look a little bit into drastic research and like kind of like who are these people? Like are they like connected to the Epoch Times? You know, <laughs> like, yeah. like just try to make sure that, you know, there isn't like a shit coat lying in the wings. Uh, for way. But as far as I can see, this is like, a kind of um, a collective of scientists that have been, you know, yeah, in, uh, it's like some dude at Rutgers and mm-hmm. yeah, Gilles de Manouf. I don't really know too much about him. Uh, yes, there are, there are like a few people, um, that some of whom are use their real names and some of whom have uh, kind of online pseudonyms. I, I mean, I look through and their their documents do seem to be authentic and. They, the two big bombshell ones that, again, have not been getting enough coverage, but they really, I think, shed some light on what might have been going on uh, at the Wuhan uh, Institute of Virology in the 2010s. So one is a proposal to DARPA, a project proposal, which was called uh, Project Diffuse, uh, diffusing the threat of bat-borne coronaviruses. This was submitted to DARPA. This is a grant request submitted to DARPA in, I think, March of 2018 that was going to be uh, basically pursued at a few different labs around the world. Um, One was at the uh, Palo Alto Research Center in Palo Alto, California, which I think has a long and storied history of all kinds of uh, interesting things in the kind of internet, like even, I think, parapsychology world. Anyways, and then... uh, uh, Wuhan, China, at the Wuhan uh, Institute of Virology, and at Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where Dr. Ralph Barrick works, and I guess also in Singapore, New York, and Madison, Wisconsin. This document basically, it also, okay, the, the it, it's worth mentioning that the, the second document that was leaked by the whistleblower through Drastic was uh, the rejection letter by DARPA. Um, rejecting this proposal, which is interesting in its own right. Um, it, it, it rejects it, but says, uh, although if funding became available, certain components of particular interest could have gone ahead, subject to a clear contractual dual-use research of concern risk mitigation plan that, quote, includes a responsible communications plan. Even the NIH, like, funding document for uh, their bat research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology they were like, you know, if this crosses over into gain of function research, like, you know, you need to let us know right away. 
and like mm-hmm. we need to reassess the project which is like a inherently slippery term a lot of the stuff that i read from people like i think even dasek himself like basically what they like a lot of people of who are interested in this type of like somewhat like dangerous arguably like bat coronavirus research they're like you can't get rid of gain of function research you know without getting rid of all of virology i, I don't yes, remember exactly, exactly who said that but that's like kind of the sentiment you know like uh, that everyone kind of was just like wink wink like nudge about the whole thing you know yes exactly yeah. um maybe to start out here to read a uh, drastic researches uh kind of context and summary of the uh eco health proposal just to place it in a little bit of context because there were a lot of things going on in virology and gain of function research and all these things in the two the 2010s yeah. and gain um, of function is like just so difficult to define that like you know it can be defined really broadly or really narrowly you know it's basically like making a virus uh you know have new features that could be dangerous to humans or like that could you know make a virus that can't affect humans become transmissible to humans so you can study it that's one way to define it some yeah, people or other animals like, or, or yeah, like rats it, or ferrets yeah sometimes people like define it as just like giving it any new features at all but it's like a very slippery term like it seems yeah. like people use very different definitions of it um, yes and it inherently also involves this term that we will come back to a few times which is dual use which i think in a nutshell basically is the notion that something that is made for a benign purpose for research purposes to say test like you know human defenses against a potential virus could also be used as a bioweapon just by nature of what it is yeah. i mean if you're inventing something uh, that you know uh, basically can infect humans more well then it logically follows that you could use it to infect humans basically so or that it you know it, it it could be weaponized in some whether it's by terrorists or scientists or, or the globalists whatever <laughs> you know like it, it it's just like a this is something they talk about a lot and it's very wrapped up with gain of function research but i'll just read this context and summary that drastic provided because it'll help lay down the timeline of what was going on with EcoHealth. so they write these leaked documents describing bat research proposed by EcoHealth Alliance should be considered in light of the following context. On August 27, 2021, the U.S. intelligence community issued a 502-word summary of the conclusions drawn up by the joint investigation ordered by President Biden in late May. Conspicuously absent from the brief statement were any indications that the evidence prevented in testimony to Congress had been part of the intelligence community analysis, at least not in the unclassified version that was released. The lifting of the gain-of-function moratorium in late 2017 via the Potential Pandemic Pathogen Care and Oversight Framework, P3CO, has allowed gain-of-function research with SARS-like coronaviruses to resume with very few practical limits. In particular, the absence of clear definitions of gain-of-function, creative interpretations of the guidelines, and rather discretionary decisions to refer research projects or not, all contributed to reducing the effectiveness of the P3CO framework, despite the fact that other agencies of the U.S. federal government actively maintain the GOF standards. Drastic recently became aware of documents which show that EcoHealth Alliance, in concert with the WIV, were looking towards implementing an advanced human pathogenicity bat COVID research project that clearly qualifies as gain-of-function in a grant proposal submitted to a funding proposal call by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, in the spring of 2018. 
The EcoHealth WIV proposal, named Diffuse, was ultimately rejected for full funding, but leaving open the door for partial funding, in part because it skirted the GOF guidelines. In other words, a branch of the federal government had already judged aspects of EHA's research and the corresponding shared research plan with the WIV as falling under the definition of gain of function, only for HHS to approve similar work without P3CO review in 2018 and 2019. In particular, the P3CO framework was designed to allow greater flexibility for vaccine development, and in June of 2018, the NIH's Vaccine Research Center expanded its its existing partnership with Moderna to include full-scale research into a pan-coronavirus vaccine platform. (laughs) Sound familiar? EcoHealth Alliance repeatedly took advantage of this flexibility to continue their work with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Drastic has reviewed the contents of these documents. They detail past achievements and planned experiments in collaboration with researchers from the WIV, East China Normal University, UNC Chapel Hill, Duke National University in Singapore, the USGS National Wildlife Health Center, and the Palo Alto Research Center Park. The grant proposal includes some elements of research that are already public via scientific papers, as well as other elements that have never been made public. These include, and this is the big whopper in this proposal, these include vaccinating wild bats using aerosolized recombinant SARS-CoV spike proteins in nanoparticles or in orthopox viral vectors and further work on published and unpublished COVID strains that could fill the same ex- could fill the extant gaps in our understanding of the origins of SARS-CoV-2. These grant proposal documents also show a staggeringly deep level of involvement of EcoHealth Alliance with the Wuhan lab on matters of national interest. For instance, by proposing that uh, the DARPA grant pays a good chunk of key Wuhan researchers' salaries, or that some of these Wuhan researchers should be invited to DARPA headquarters in Arlington, (laughs) all the while without proper risk assessment and considerations for ethical and social issues, and with an incorrect evaluation of what constitutes gain-of-function research. So yeah, that's basically the the gist of like their report. They wanted to study bat coronaviruses but particularly in this what they say is that and and this this is like so this is this is actually a whole new theory about where covid could have come from because their proposal i'll read it here on their one one page from the report there was a a summary under the category approach um they wanted under intervention development So there are four things they want to study. One was broad-scale immune boosting, inoculate bats with immune modulators to upregulate their naturally inhibited innate immunity and suppress viral replication, transiently reducing viral shedding and spillover risk. Two, targeted immune boosting. In concert with above, inoculate bats with novel chimeric polyvalent recombinant spike proteins to enhance their adaptive immune memory against specific high-risk viruses. So that sounds like literally testing mRNA vaccine technology on these bats. Third, viral dynamics. Develop stochastic simulation models to estimate the frequency, efficacy, and population coverage required for intervention approaches to effectively suppress the viral population. So how many bats do we need to vaccinate to reach herd immunity? And last but certainly not least, field trial. 
use team expertise in wildlife vaccine delivery, transdermal nanoparticles, raccoon pox virus vector, to develop effective molecule delivery via automated aerosolization onto bats at roost entrance at our three test cave sites in a cave complex in Yunnan, China, where SARS-CoVs have infected people. Okay, so I guess in layman's terms, what they were proposing to DARPA was they had three test caves in China, not a lab, just yeah, caves. Yunnan, which is kind Yunnan. of far away from Wuhan. It, it is far away, but that is where they were uh, taking a lot of these uh, bat coronavirus samples. And I think yeah, Rat G13. had found like a cave of like weird like bat stuff, like or, uh, bat coronavirus in a cave in Yunnan at one point. Am I wrong? Yeah, I think she found a lot of bat coronaviruses in those caves. And that's where the, yeah. the, the most close known relative of COVID 19. Or, or SARS-CoV-2 is I believe it's called Rat G13, and that was a rare bat coronavirus that uh, a couple of miners uh, contracted I think in 2012, and they became very sick after shoveling bat guano in a tunnel for three days with poor ventilation equipment. They came out very sick, and then I think they sent in three younger workers who also got very sick. The first three died. I think the the last three were able to recover. But they, they preserved a sample of this bat virus that was able to jump to humans. But uh, And I think Xi Jinglei was actually like one of the leads on mm-hmm. researching yeah. this virus. It kind of made her career yeah. and and sparked this whole interest in, in uh, heading off the threat of like bat viruses. But as they realized at the time, this was not a particularly um, uh, contagious uh, virus. Like the, the main reason it attacked these guys so heavily is because they were basically just like marinating in it for three days in an unventilated shaft and just like like huge concentrations of it, like shoveling back guano. And so it, they basically received such a overwhelming viral load that it overwhelmed their immune system and killed them. But it's not the kind of thing where, like, if that vi- if that exact virus, Rad G13, had gotten out somehow and, like, somebody went to a wet market and, like, spread it to other people, like, maybe a few people would have gotten sick. But it, it wasn't optimized to bind to human cells the way COVID does. And it was very hard. So it's, like, it wasn't – the virus itself was not, like, a clear and present danger, but it was very effective at attacking humans in high loads. So people thought it was worth – uh, researching and then where the gain of function comes in and there were multiple grants over the 2010s from NIH which is you know basically run by Dr. Fauci um, and then also there was like more subterranean money from DARPA from the Pentagon and from USAID a lot of it funneling through EcoHealth Alliance to sponsor the research in Wuhan in the lab uh, looking into these bat coronaviruses what people basically are saying is that they were doing gain-of-function research on rat yeah. g13 and ones like it to right. optimize Including it and see if ones that just ignored and hadn't even been flagged like so many different novel coronaviruses that's yeah. what drastic kind of discovered that yes yeah like they kind of like covered up all these things and Shi Zengli was just like it is a conspiracy theory yeah, this is good. but but then if you look even just before the uh, thing with the field trial under the approach thing on host pathogen prediction, a couple of things they say they want to do. Uh, one is integrated field sampling, viral characterization and modeling, 
in-depth sampling of bats, SARS, RCOVs uh, in high-risk sites of active spillover, Yunnan, China. Um, uh, spatial models, uh, or I think that says spatial, uh, using bat and viral data to estimate SARS-CoV jump potential across Asia, spatial viral spillover risk mobile app, um, et cetera. And this one's interesting, experimental assays to test uh, QS, uh, QS0, I guess that must be the specific spike, uh, QS0 jump potential. Sequence QS0 spike protein similarity to high-risk SARS-CoVs. Model spike structure to assess ACE2 binding. That's the human receptor that the COVID spike, the V-COVID virus binds to. Then in vitro and ACE2 humanized mouse experiments. Use results to test machine learning genotype to phenotype model predictions of viral spillover risk and genotype phenotype models, models to estimate evolutionary recombination rates, capacity to generate future QS capable of human infection based on spike protein diversity, recombination frequency, etc., and validation with previously connected human sera. Use LIPS assays that target specific SARS-CoV spikes to identify spillover of these strains in a high-risk population in Yunnan, China. So right there, they're talking about fucking around with the spike proteins to to assess how well they bind to the ACE2 receptors which is and then you know basically make humanized mice that I guess have that receptor and experiment it on them yes and I mean it sounds like they're doing some gain of function oh definitely they are there's no doubt that they were doing gain of function and even though they like, lied, they lied that they, they like, I think Dashik even, I think, testified to Congress and Fauci did as well, that, that they use very slippery language that we have never like we have never founded gain yeah. of function research in the Wuhan lab. What he means is that we gave money to EcoHealth and EcoHealth funded the research, which means yeah. that we weren't funding it. <laughs> like, like, I mean, come no, on. but they definitely were doing gain of function research by uh, any standard. Like literally that thing that I said before, this is basically just like similar to what you said. This is like from Vanity Fair again. In October 2014, the Obama administration imposed a moratorium on new funding uh, for gain-of-function research projects that could make influenza, MERS, or SARS viruses more virulent and transmissible. But a footnote to the statement announcing the moratorium carved out an exception for cases deemed urgently necessary to protect the public health and national security. Mm. And, you know, by the way, like, they actually had gotten, like, funding uh, from NIAID, like, before the moratorium even like peter yeah. like an eco health but anyway so in the first year of the trump administration the moratorium was lifted and replaced with a review system called hhs pco framework for potential pandemic pathogen care and oversight it put the onus for ensuring the safety of any such research on the federal department or agency funding it this left the review process shrouded in secrecy the names of the reviewers are not released and the details of the experiments are considered to be largely secret said the Harvard epidemiologist, Dr. Mark Lipsitch, whose advocacy against gain-of-function research helped prompt the moratorium. An NIH spokesperson told Vanity Fair that information about individual unfunded explications is not public to preserve confidentiality and protect sensitive information, preliminary data, and intellectual property. Uh, So this is the sort of thing. Inside the NIH, which funded such research, the uh, P3CO framework was largely met with shrugs and eye rolls, said a longtime agency official. If you ban gain-of-function research, you ban all of virology, he added. Ever since Mm -hmm. the moratorium, everyone's gone wink-wink and just done gain-of-function research anyway. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Well, so. yeah, I mean, that that's, uh, I, there's somebody we'll get to later who has a connection to EcoHealth, um, who is, uh, what is his name? David Franz, who just so happened to be the commander of Fort Detrick, our main bioweapons uh, facility in Maryland in the late 1990s. Uh, there's some interesting connections like the, an- the anthrax false flag attacks, but I found a, uh, a lecture that he had given in 2016 where he, and this is while the moratorium was still active, where he repeatedly complains about the onerous regulations on science and research and basically kind of essentially says, uh, and this is a lecture, by the way, about gain-of-function issues and, and dual-use concerns, but basically is like, what are you going to do? Regulate all this away? I think yeah. he says literally at one point and, and is really encouraging about sponsoring he even name drops ralph barrick who is one of the people that was listed on this uh, study proposal out of unc chapel hill and he says you know uh, i did like we really need to do gain of function work on mers which ralph barrick is doing great stuff on but i think he's been shut down by the regulators who don't understand science no. and all this kind of stuff and i mean this guy i think is on the advisory board of eco health alliance so we'll maybe circle back to that later he mentions a lot of things in it were like you know, they're like Monsanto advocates or whatever, you know, they're like oh, it's anti-science to, you know, mm-hmm. be skeptical of GM. But the, as you said, like they got a ton of money. It's crazy. Like she's Zhang Li got like 1.2 million of U.S. money like uh, in her uh, and she listed it on her on her CV, which is just absolutely nuts. Yeah. As you mentioned, Defense Department, Department of Homeland Security. Yeah and, yeah. and we can't we can't like rule out the perverse financial incentives that exist at like every step in this process that do not seem to redound to the benefit of like serious science. You know, yeah. it's like the the perverse incentives of basically they are chasing grant money from the government. They are just like little piggies, like waiting for that DARPA trough to fill up. And of course, they're going to be simpatico with DARPA. And it's like, who who the fuck even know? Like, you know, DARPA would be yeah. on the, the, the short, the high list of like institutions I do not fucking trust no matter what they're doing. Like the, this is where we got like the robot dogs. This is where we got the internet. This is where we got, you know, I mean, go down the list, like probably energy weapons and like whatever fucking technology causes the Vanna syndrome that we're probably doing to ourselves, you know, like (laughs) who the fuck knows. Um, Um, but you know, did you, uh, get a chance to look at the grant rescindment or like the, the reinstatement of the grant? No, like, uh, when, First, the, you know, the NIAID within the NIH, like, withdrew the DASAC grant to study back coronaviruses that he had. Was um, that in 2020 when Trump did that? Yeah, basically Trump yeah, did yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I remember like, that. And it was like, Trump's was like, anti-science. Yeah, and some reporter was like, was, Mr. Trump, yeah. like, why did we give all this money to China to fund this uh, virus? And Trump was like, what? Like, I'm going to end <laughs> that right away. And, but... It got reinstated, but, like, the NIH's, like, concerns list is, like, truly amazing. Like, the list of concerns they gave, they're mm-hmm. like, this is what you do, uh, you need to do in order to get your grant back. They said, provide an aliquot of the actual SARS-CoV-2 virus that WIV used to determine the viral sequence. 
Two, explain the apparent disappearance of Huang Yan Ling, a scientist slash technician who worked in the WIV lab, but whose lab web presence has been deleted. That's my favorite one because <laughs> wow. that was like a whole thing that like came up on like Chinese social media too. This is like allegedly like patient zero, and like she just vanished off the internet, and then like wow. you know it was all just written off because there was like some letter from like someone was like I am her former professor. She has moved to a new like institute, and she is happy and working. Like everything is fine. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Jesus. Yeah. Okay. Uh, provide the NIH with W advisor responses to, uh, to one, 2018 U.S. Department of State cables regarding safety concerns. Disclose yep. and explain ad ordinary restrictions on laboratory facilities as suggested, for example, by diminished cell phone traffic in October 2019 and the evidence that there may have been roadblocks surrounding the facility from October 14th to 19th, 2019. Uh, five, explain what? why WIV failed to note that the rat G13 virus, the bat-derived coronavirus and its collection with the greatest similarity to SARS COVID-2 was actually isolated from an abandoned mine where three men died in 2012 with an illness remarkably similar to COVID-19 and explain why this was not followed up. Six, additionally, EcoHealth Alliance must arrange for WIV to submit to an outside inspection team charged to review the lab facilities and lab records with specific attention to addressing the question of whether the Wuhan Institute of Virology staff had SARS-CoV-2 in their possession prior to December 2019. The inspection team should be granted full access to review the processes and safety of procedures of all WIV fieldwork, including but not limited to the collection of animals and biospecimens in caves, abandoned man-made underground cavities, and outdoor sites. The inspection team can be organized by NIAID or, if preferred, the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. Lastly, EcoHealth Alliance must ensure that all of its subawards are fully reported in the federal subaward reporting system. So, yeah. Huh. Uh, that's yeah, like a lot hilarious of issues list there. of requirements. Yeah, like yeah, why did. Yeah. yeah, but that's a whole thing. I don't know. Have you uh, also like uh, heard about like the whole like military games thing? Yes, I've heard. I remember that way back in 2020 that some people speculated on from a di- bunch of different angles that this yeah. might have been the actual patient zero release because, it, you know, a lot of countries had yeah. military men there. And, you know, the nature of the military, they all bunk together. They're all in close quarters. Right. Like, you know, they're all yeah. wrestling and, and getting no, close to each other all the time. And, you know, so if you wondered, like, maybe how how did it get to Italy? How did it get to, like, France? How did it get to America first? Because I think, you know, it was it, it, we found it earlier on, like, the West Coast than we initially thought. Um, so there's a and, and the version that took off in New York was actually like the Italian variant. Right. Um, like it actually like the the one that hit the northeast in the spring of 2020 i believe like that primarily came from europe but then you know that came from china at some point and uh, i mean if somebody would have wanted to release it at that point yeah when when was that like in october yeah october 2019 when and they said they had roadblocks outside of the wiv in october was yeah something that well a lot of people actually because yeah i was looking up into the military games thing recently and uh they like a lot of the athletes like started to come forward and be like it was weird like during that time that we were there like there were like you know uh like they made us like sanitize our hands at the airport like it was like a ghost huh. town like you know huh. a, and a lot of them said like yeah my whole team got sick afterwards you know it was really i thought it was a really bad cold but i'm not sure what it was yeah Weird. it was you know i mean china like i think that they kind of like were boosting that for a while because you know they were as we 
as we talked about, like, everyone is like, it's the CCP, like, they did this, it's like a bioweapon, we have to declare war on them, or whatever, you know, like... They uh, did, there were, I did see some things in media that China, like, kind of early on was like, particularly whenever Trump would go off and talk shit, they yeah. would sort of be like, well, maybe uh, you guys, like, released exactly. it on purpose yeah, to, like, ruin this, us. They would do the same, th- yeah, they basically, yeah. like, yeah, they I'm, had their own version of that, which is that, like, the, it didn't come from China, like the U.S. like brought it there with their soldiers. Like it was from Fort Olympic Detrick type thing. Yeah, which you know we do have a commander of Fort Detrick yeah. involved with. Uh, but it Eco-Hubble seems. Lions, I mean, but, but it seems uh, like the, the Wuhan time. Institute of Virology is basically like a U.S. like outpost in many ways. Exactly. That yeah, that that's like, the big misdirection. The shit coat that I feel like the people like Tucker and even even the Newsweek articles they lead with like basically. Uh, you know, like Pentagon denies funding like gain of function research at the Wuhan lab. And, you know, basically they kind of spin it in a way it's like, well, we got this proposal, but no, it was too irresponsible. So we said no. And it's like, oh, good for DARPA. But then we don't know what the Chinese did, you know? And I don't know exactly like, because I mean, the one thing I guess, you know, the Pinocchio givers could say to us is like, well, you know, this was just a proposal. And they didn't actually, you know, do these experiments, though. I, I think mean, we can all agree if they NIH had done them, it would be super dangerous and fucked up. What you described isn't too different from the NIH proposal that they got approved. It's pretty yeah. much the same. Like if you look at like their NIH proposal, that's like on the intercept, like the one from 2014, it's pretty much the same stuff. Like nothing like that you mentioned, like really jumps out at me. As well, I think the main thing. thing is going to caves and like injecting bats with experimental vaccine with mRNA vaccines and but then dropping like aerosolized like, dispensers of like chimeric COVID viruses in there to see how well they do. Like that's an out of the lab experiment with an airborne virus like that is pretty insane. I, I haven't I seen mean, any I haven't seen any even like a serious scientist come out yet and defend that as just an like a proposal of like a, a responsible experiment to do and maybe it's yeah. the kind of thing where nobody wanted to be caught on paper saying yes to that <laughs> i don't but know it's like, like re- it's known basically that they they did do that like oh that, yeah yeah I, know, I would re- reasonably assume that they ended up doing that through whether Shizong darpa Lee later funded like it. admitted to doing it in like chinese media uh in like science journals she said that she's like done experiments with humanized mice and things like that. Like, in but has she them. done it with bats in like caves outside of a laboratory? Um, hmm, I'm not because that sure would seem like a pretty that's a record. pretty big difference. Like, this is a level four virology lab, this is the highest level of security that exists. But they and definitely did it at like level one, and they definitely did experiments at level two, like with these that's things. That's true. Like, like they their, did, their especially security, in the US like was as well. not good. Yeah, uh, no, they definitely wasn't. were doing. But stuff uh, but, at but level even two still, level even if it was like the shittiest level one lab, you have to. It, we must concede that going out to a cave in the wild is like a totally different situation than doing something in a lab, regardless of what you're like. It's way more risky. Like what if a bat like leaves the cave? Like, you know what I mean? Like, like what, like how do you control that? Like how do you control the movement of like hundreds of bats? Did you hear about like the BBC team that like went to, uh, like in 2020, like they went to that mine shaft that like started, uh, she's on Lee's career 
Wasn't there and like a truck broken down? Yeah, in front yeah, of yeah. Road? Yeah, there was like a mysterious truck there, and they were like <laughs> followed by like you know mysterious like plainclothes cops or something. Like Chinese uh, CCP MIBs. Um, yeah, CCP MIBs. Yeah, following them around. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think definitely there's definitely something going on with the Chinese government here, and like yeah, they're I mean, not they, showing. They're like, definitely not showing their they're full complicit. hand. Like they know what's yes. up, but like so is the U.S. government. You know, like yeah, and I think that's the more important, like, I, I feel like that's the more important driver here in terms of, like, who was really banging the drum for this research and who was shelling out millions of dollars. It was the Pentagon. So, yeah. you know, and, like, what better what better partnership to have where you can get up close to the Chinese and then, oops, like, this big horrible thing happens. It starts a global pandemic, but it's, like, on their soil. So just inherently... The world, if anybody's going to blame a country, it's going to be China. Yeah. You know, like people, most people aren't going to look, scratch beneath the surface and see like, oh, but like this lab was doing, it's almost confusing. Like it, it, it sort of violates our sense of like geopolitical rivalry that yeah, it like does. DARPA that, and the Chinese military, because uh, like people like Tucker yeah, but say I all think the time, that's key. like the yeah, Chinese exactly. military was funding research, you know? This is, and, what I, and, this is what I mean where I say like the politicization like makes it so impossible to like, you know, see through like the haze uh, to like talk about this because like, yeah, like the fact is that like they were like, Shi Zong Li is a member of like an honorary member of like the American Academy of like microbial sciences or something, you know, like mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly what it is, like microbiology, something like that. Microbial sciences kill me. But anyway, like, uh, she, uh, yeah, like they, it is like an international collaboration. Like, you know, uh, I don't know, like who had knowledge, like it's all very murky, like how this happened. Like, Maybe it truly was an accident. Definitely could be. It even could oh, yeah, yeah. be that's zoonotic, what I, that, but that's like, what I mean. Know. That's what I mean is like like this is this actually throws a whole new interesting uh, array of possibilities into the mix as to like how this virus could have gotten out. Because when we talk about lab leaks, you think about like the beginning of like one of those movies, like Outbreak or something, where like a guy is like, oh, he like tears his like hazmat suit on like a you know a, th- a nail on the door or something, and then oh my god, he's infected, and then it gets out of like literally gets out of a lab. Yeah. But in this case, they were bringing it. They were openly talking about bringing it out of a lab and then creating these like almost like out of like some terrorism thriller movie, like some state of the art, like aerosolized bomb thing. You would like chuck in a cave that would just spray out this salute, this aerosolized version of like a, a gain of functioned bat coronavirus to test out all kinds of things with it. And at that point, like all it would take was then it's almost like the zoonotic origin theory that people like Peter Daszak espouse and cling to it, it their theory could be true from there but of course they're omitting the thing of like well how did that specific optimized bat coronavirus get into the bat in the first place now of course it's still if they sprayed it there like they could have sprayed it at all kinds of places they could have sprayed it at the military games like you know uh it it's really hard to say exactly i mean maybe in time we'll we'll get more like nuggets of information but maybe not but it doesn't even require a kind of um like the 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 propensity for accidents like the potential for an accidental release of this thing the, it was like their plan to release it out in an open environment 
you know, maybe they thought it was safe because it was like a rural cave or something like that. But you just never know. I mean, like, I don't know, like it, it just feels like so risky. And so it, it expands the I think the, the possibility that it's somewhere along that chain, if they did, in fact, go and start spraying this in caves to like infect a bunch of bats then it could have gotten out in a kind of accidental way subsequently to that. It's still their fault. <laughs> like, they still yeah. did it. And uh, at the same time, it also, like, it's a god, if they're just driving around China with all these, like, virus canisters and shit and doing all kinds of crazy experiments, like, it doesn't take much. I mean, people forget that, you know, the anthrax attacks in 2001 you know, still not definitively solved, but what is solved is that that was not an Islamic terrorist who wrote, like, death to Israel, like, Allah rules, you know, whatever. Yeah. It was an, it was a government yeah, insider. Allah at, great, right? Yeah, Allah <laughs> is great. It was at one of the biosecurity labs that run by the U.S. government itself, run by the Pentagon, that was doing biowarfare research on anthrax. Like, that's, they traced the anthrax spores back to one of their laboratories. So the idea that, and who knows, well, maybe it was a disgruntled scientist. Maybe it was something else. I mean, it, it is worth mentioning that right after the anthrax attacks, the funding for uh, infectious diseases and biodefense and shit, I think it went from somewhere like maybe a couple hundred million a year to like five billion or something like that. Like an absolute gold rush for these, all these guys, all these scientists. Um, everybody from Fauci to Peter Daszak and, and all, all the way and David Friends, all the way down. Uh, so, yeah, you know, shit, shit happens like that, doesn't it? Uh, sometimes it's accidental. Sometimes all it takes is one malicious actor, for whatever reason you want to ascribe to them, to go and release this thing that if they worked at the lab, they might know is very pathogenic and transmissible by humans. And so all you have to do is, like, take one of those aerosol, like, grenades and just, like, boop, like, in a fucking movie. Uh, do it at the Wuhan thing. Do it at the military games. Do it in a bar. I don't know. Like, put it in the ventilation system somewhere in a crowded city in Wuhan. And then, poof, there you go. It's out in the public now. And it's been optimized well enough to actually spread, unlike Rat G13 in 2012, where mm -hmm. it, even if they had done that, it, that virus wouldn't have... It would have been more like SARS in 2003, where I think a few hundred people ended up dying from it, but it wasn't particularly um, contagious, you know, no, nowhere near as, as much as COVID-19. But yeah, I mean, <clears throat> so wait, let's talk a minute maybe about the head of EcoHealth Alliance, Peter Daszak, mm -hmm. this character. <sighs> There's so much with him, but... I don't know. What was your impression of Peter Daszak as an individual um, on the well, sus like, to all these satanic seem, ratio? <laughs> well, like, all these people <laughs> like seem, like, very sus and, like, unscrupulous. Like, it was bizarre that they, like, wrote that, like, letter, like, you know, protesting, like, the, that Lancet letter. Yes, that is very that. sus. Yeah. And then yeah. they all, like, kind of went behind, like, you know, like, went behind the scenes and were like, oh, you know, we shouldn't sign it. 
uh, Peter Daszak was the only one who did sign it. And then he had to be like, you know, they wrote in the letter like, oh, we don't have any like conf- conflicts of interest. But then yep. he had to be like, oh, wait, actually, I totally do have a conflict of interest. But <laughs> he like was emailing with like Barrick and uh, she and all those other people. It looks know. a lot like controlling the narrative. He did that very early. What in like April 2020, he published this like thing over 20 you know, something uh, serious scientists in The Lancet. And saying like, yeah, we condemn, I love the language of this because it's so similar to everything you hear on like reinforced on like CNN every day and stuff. He says, uh, the rapid, open and transparent sharing of data on this outbreak is now being threatened by rumors and misinformation around its origins. We stand together to strongly condemn conspiracy theories suggesting that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. Scientists from multiple countries have published and analyzed genomes of the causative agent, severe acute respiratory system syndrome coronavirus 2, and they overwhelmingly conclude that this coronavirus originated in wildlife, as have so many other emerging pathogens. This is further supported by a letter from the presidents of the U.S. National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, and by the scientific communities they represent. Conspiracy theories do nothing but create fear, rumors, and prejudice that jeopardize our global collaboration in the fight against this virus. We support the call from the Director General of WHO to promote scientific evidence and unity over misinformation and conjecture. We want you, the science and health professionals of China, to know that we stand with you in your fight against this virus. We invite others to join us in supporting the scientists, public health professionals, and medical professionals of Wuhan and across China. Stand with our colleagues on the front line. We speak in one voice and blah, blah, blah. We declare no competing interests. <laughs> Very cool. So we he was like, declare no competing interests. Yeah. And no like just behind the scenes, you know, Dazak. Like, there was a, a freedom of information request, and they, like, you know, got some emails from him, and he wrote uh, a uh, subject with the subject line, uh, no need for you to sign the statement, Ralph, he wrote uh, to Ralph Barrick, <laughs> and he said, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, me, and him should not sign this statement, so it has some distance from us, and therefore it doesn't work in a counterproductive way. That's Dazek. So, uh, uh-huh. we'll then put Very it out in a way that doesn't innocent. link it back to our collaboration, so we maximize an independent voice. Uh, Barrick agreed, writing back. Otherwise, it looks self-serving, and we lose impact. But the way these people are able to talk anyway. about, like, yeah, like, like, fuck you, like, you know, you. Uh, that's guilty as hell to do. Yeah, uh, that's extreme. Like, and you know, like, not only like Ralph Barrick, who is like a huge weirdo, who um, there's a really great New York Magazine article that I, I went back and reread. It was from January fourth, uh, twenty twenty. That's why the, the FBI had to send in the Capitol riots just get so nobody would read this uh, article. But quite good um by nicholson baker called the lap leak hypothesis and it's like very in-depth but it you know it goes into peter daschick it goes into ralph barrick and how ralph barrick i think he says that he wrote a quote long fairly creepy paper from 2006 on how you could weaponize viruses um synthetic viral genomics which actually was protested i think at the time by a lot of other scientists And he also bragged multiple times um, about how he had created a seamless, what he called the no-seam method of creating chimera viruses that look completely natural and showed no signs of editing or gain of function. Well, apparently it didn't work because COVID like does have like suspicious features that people have pointed out. (laughs) 
like uh, it does it does well, we got to talk about that that fear and cleavage site don't we yeah the fear and cleavage site that is odd like even like one guy he had to he kind of walked it back like he got a lot of pressure for it but there was like a pretty prominent like uh biologist you know he's had a couple of controversies in his career but he did like come forward and say like that it seemed like kind of like a smoking gun of Mm -hmm. you know like covid's origins like that fur and cleavage site and it is weird i guess he's like i regret saying smoking gun you know without necessarily saying that it wasn't engineered but he's still like yeah 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 i forget what yeah the new york magazine article actually mentions uh sam husseini who's like kind of an old school like i feel like code pink like cindy sheehan kind of like Mm -hmm. counterpunch journalist but you know, I mean, whatever. Uh, but, you know, he, he's been kind of a, a, a rabid dog on this COVID thing all the way through. And he wrote a pretty good um, takedown of the Pentagon funding of EcoHealth Alliance. But uh, back in January, uh, it mentions here that he was at a conference at the National Press Club in February 2020. And he asked a question of the CDC's representative, Ann Shukat where the virus had come from. And he said later his head was spinning. Obviously, the main concern is how to stop the virus. Nonetheless, he wanted to know about its source. Uh, Is it the CDC's contention that there's absolutely no relation to the BSL-4 lab in Wuhan? It's my understanding that's the only place in China with a BSL-4 lab. We in the U.S. have, I think, two dozen or so, and there have been problems and incidents. Uh, Husseini hastened to say he wasn't implying that what happened with Wuhan is anyway intentional. I'm just asking, is it a clique? Coincidence, uh, Shukat thanked Husseini for his questions and comments. Everything she'd seen was consistent with a natural zoonotic origin for the disease, she said. But that same month, a group of French scientists from I Marseille University posted a paper describing their investigation of a small insertion in the genome of the new SARS-2 virus. The virus's spike protein contained a sequence of amino acids that formed what Etienne de Croly and colleagues called, quote, a peculiar furin-like cleavage site a chemically sensitive region on the lobster claw of the spike protein that would react in the presence of an enzyme called furin, which is a type of protein found everywhere within the human body, but especially in the lungs. When the spike senses human furin, it shudders, chemically speaking, and the enzyme opens the protein, commencing the tiny morbid ballet whereby the virus burns a hole in a host cell's outer membrane and finds its way inside. The code for this particular molecular feature, not found in SARS or any SARS-like bad viruses, but present in a slightly different form in the more lethal MERS virus, which Dashik and Barrick heavily researched for years, is easy to remember because it's a ROAR, R-R-A-R. Uh, the letter code stands for amino acids, arginine, arginine, alanine, and arginine. Its presence, so de Croly and its quality is observed, may heighten the pathogenicity, that is the god-awfulness, of the disease. Uh, Botao Zhao, a professor at the South China University of Technology, posted a short paper on a preprint server titled The Possible Origins of 2019 NCOV Coronavirus. Two laboratories, the Wuhan Center for Disease Control and Prevention and the Wuhan Institute of Virology, were not far from the seafood market, which was where the disease was said to have originated, Zhao wrote. In fact, the WHCDC was only a few hundred yards away from the market, whereas the horseshoe bats that hosted the disease were hundreds of miles to the south. No bats were sold in the market, he pointed out. It was unlikely, he wrote, that a bat would have flown to a densely populated metropolitan area of 15 million people. The killer coronavirus probably originated from a laboratory in Wuhan, Zhao believed. He urged the relocation of, quote, biohazardous laboratories away from densely populated places. 
his article disappeared from the server. And late in the month, a professor at National Taiwan University, Feng Shi Tai, gave a lecture on the coronavirus in which he described the anomalous RRAR furin cleavage site. The virus was, quote, unlikely to have four amino acids added all at once, Fang said. Natural mutations were smaller and more haphazard, he argued. Quote, from an academic point of view, it is indeed possible that the amino acids were added to COVID-19 in the lab by humans. When the Taiwan News published an article about Fang's talk, Fang disavowed his own comments, and the video <laughs> copy of the talk disappeared from the website of the Taiwan Public Health Association. It has been taken down for a certain reason. The association a explained, thank you for your understanding. <laughs> okay, nice. Okay, so that's like it. right at the beginning, you had like a bunch of scientists from different places basically arguing that, you know, I guess you had South China University of Technology, which I, I think, I don't know if that's Hong Kong or China, but then you also had Taiwan, and then you had people in France, and everybody was looking at this, and yeah, like the other scientist said, was like, this looks like a smoking gun, this isn't natural. Basically, if you imagine the furin cleavage site and the spike protein, it's almost like a, it's like a key, and there's, you know, all kinds of different variations in nature of the shape of that key, but it just so happens that COVID-19 has the perfect key that unlocks access to like a human cell, particularly mm-hmm. in the lungs, which yeah. feels like not natural. But again, because Dr. Ralph Barrick has bragged since the mid 2000s about how he's invented the no technique of virus editing in gain of function research, there wouldn't be like, I don't know, the equivalent of like a jagged stitch of like, aha, they did it. You know what yeah. I mean? But it's like the 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 properties of it are suspicious because that yeah. is not typically how natural evolution works, right? Yeah, that guy, the guy who I mentioned, uh, you know, he was quoted in a piece by Nicholas Wade, who like I think is a controversial guy because he's like kind of like a weird like race science dude. But uh, you know, it doesn't mean that he's incapable of pointing out things. And he did quote someone who's not a race science dude, David Baltimore, who was you know a former president of Caltech. A very eminent virologist and what he said was uh when i first saw the furin cleavage site in the viral sequence with its arginine codons i said to my wife it was a smoking gun for the origin of the virus these features make a powerful challenge to the idea of a natural origin for sars too well so you know first impressions there um yeah and you know i think he only like sort of said like well you know i regret saying smoking gun like under a little bit of pressure like you know he but I think that it's still, uh, it gives like a, a clear indication. Like I said, you know, I went and I looked to see like how much of a smoking gun is it? Because that to me was something that stood out, you know, that this prominent guy was like, it's a smoking gun. So I looked it up and I saw like some articles like, no, uh, it is not, a, you know, like, et cetera. I saw so many no articles like during this. Like, in fact, I even found like a reformed, like no person who like had a whole career of like writing like, no, COVID-19 did not. But then like, really? she was like, wait a minute. Like, you know, like it started to not add up and she no. like, you know, started <laughs> to have doubts like after being like a career, like no comma a article no person. Yeah, exactly. Wow. That's a, that's a whole like subcategory beat of yeah like buzzfeed Mm. journalists now is just to write those articles like the no ringer (laughs) yes yeah so i i found a no article and in the no article they were like you know they were like in fact these uh sequence like you know for include tests can like hyperlink be generated hyperlink naturally hyperlink and like you know you had to go (laughs) manually click to like each like you know thing trying to show you like an overwhelming amount of of evidence 
But, you know, when I looked at them, what a lot of those things were saying was like, you know, that it doesn't prove that it was, you know, a, a engineered virus. And it's possible that it could, like, you know, here is a way that it could have come about naturally. So, uh, yeah, like, yeah. but that's still, like, you know, an elaborate theory, like, in, in many cases. You know, one of these articles said, strains of SARS-CoV-2 have fur and cleavage sites that spike S1, S2. Moreover, SARS-CoV-2 is the only virus in subgenus Sarbacovirus having this feature, while even its closest relatives... And uh, rat G13 and pangolin coronaviruses do not have the fur in sight. And another article uh, in that same vein, uh, that first one, let me just uh, say the title. Uh, it was fur and cleavage sites naturally occur in coronaviruses. So mm -hmm. this is like, you know, providing a way where they could show that there were some fur and cleavage sites in coronaviruses and how they could naturally occur. And this other one, a palindromic RNA sequence is a common breakpoint contributor to copy point a copy choice recombination in SARS-CoV-2, you know, and both of these articles are very much directed towards like rebutting, like they were very conscious of the lab theory, you know, uh, it mm -hmm. starts off like much remains unknown concerning the origin of novel pandemic coronavirus that has raged across the globe since emerging in Wuhan of Hubei province near the center of the People's Republic of China in December 2019. All current members of the family coronaviridae have arisen by a combination of incremental adaptive mutations against the backdrop of many recombinational effects throughout the past, rendering each a unique mosaic of RNA sequences from diverse sources. The consensus among virologists is that the, the manufactured consensus is that the base sequence of the novel coronavirus designated SARS-CoV-2 was derived from a common ancestor of bat coronavirus represented by the strain rat G13 isolated in Yunnan province in 2013. Into that ancestral genetic background, several recombination events have since occurred from other divergent bat-derived coronaviruses, resulting in localized discordance between the two. One such event left SARS-CoV-2 with a receptor binding domain capable of binding the human ACE2 receptor lacking in rat G13, and a second event uniquely added to SARS-CoV-2 a site, a specific site for furin, capable of efficient endoproteolytic cleavage and activation of the spike glycoprotein responsible for virus entry and cell fusion. This paper demonstrates by bioinformatic analysis that such recombinational events are facilitated by short oligonucleotide breakpoint sequences similar to CAGAC that direct recombination naturally to certain positions in the genome at the boundaries between blocks of RNA code and potentially RNA structure. This breakpoint sequence hypothesis, quote-unquote, provides a natural explanation for the biogenesis of SARS-CoV-2 over time and in the wild. Okay, you know, she, so they got this their is magic like, bullet theory. Right, exactly. Um, this is basically like kind of a magic bullet theory. But they did say the SARS-CoV-2 and HKU9 sequences can be aligned as nine identities in a span of 28 nucleotides of HKU9 with minimal gaps. While not perfect, this does support the hypothesis that the entire furin insert may have been derived by recombination from an as-yet unsampled coronavirus oh. mediated by the presence of CAGAC as the lead nucleotide in both progenitor viruses with other palindromic oglonucleotides as contributors. A recent bat coronavirus isolate from Yunnan has 
also has an apparent insert at the S1, S2 border, PAA rather than PRRA, supporting the concept of a natural insertion at the site. However, this insert is far too dissimilar to the RNA sequence encoding the S protein of SARS-CoV-2 to be at all closely related in origin and therefore does not contribute an endoproteolytic site for furin. So basically, again, there's like this ancestor of COVID that just yes. doesn't exist, that they can't find. No one the knows where it link. is. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Like RADG13 seems to be like the more distant ancestor of this yeah, virus. Yeah, it definitely but is related to that. A but missing link somewhere where yes. it just perfect furin spike. <laughs> yeah, just exactly. Just like uh, grafted into it. To make it perfectly infect human lung cells. Yes, and, and it just, it really, you um, know, somehow came about, yeah. And it was just only the leading experts on the people who do that for a living and are, like, almost messianically attached to doing that and have, like, yeah, and lobbied like the government for millions about, of dollars. Yeah, like, uh, doing gain-of-function research and how they need freedom and putting uh, viruses in bats and measuring them and... Uh, like all the risks involved yeah i'm like reading this nih thing uh, over again just to see like the you know if they did mention going into caves i mean they did but they didn't talk about like releasing bats into the caves uh or anything no. like that so that but is also like the nih thing. stuff was earlier so i feel like what you get in the leaked documents from drastic is that the there's a lot of references to previous research they've already done leading up to 2018 and i guess the people that have sort of analyzed it have said that there's like multiple references to the fact that they've been doing gain-of-function research that yeah. they've been and also the the really interesting thing is like developing mrna vaccines right they were already partnering with moderna back in 2018 to develop a sort of pan coronavirus vaccine based on an mrna platform so it's interesting that the bad experiments actually sounded like primarily they weren't doing it to test the pathogenicity of the the kind right, the they wanted to vaccinate the bats they wanted to vaccinate the bats and they wanted <laughs> to test in a realistic environment how yeah. effective is this moderna mrna vaccine in a bat yeah. cave mm. and that see to me that just jumps out as like you create a problem and then you sell everybody the solution to the problem because you already got it ready to go. I mean, they did create these things in like one year, which I mean, ironically they use as a, a selling point to be like, it's not new. We've been working on this, but there's like a perverse <laughs> potential incentive there where yeah, the you're developing this least, thing. At the very least, the idea that it was, you know, I mean, it could be in a way like, you know, the maliciousness or like the, the intentional release like does even you know, involves less coincidence almost, but I would say at the very least, like, you know, the lab leak and resulting cover-up is very compelling. I mean, honestly, the deliberate release, like, also has things to recommend it, like, you know, but I don't know. The lab, it's, it's, there's a lot of suspicious stuff, like, around these. There these, is, there yeah. is. And almost like, a little bit like, almost a little bit like 9-11 when, you know, I think we engage in a, a healthy discourse. Um, I think we lost one patron after you suggested that the towers were not Oh, excuse me. Is that uh, why we lost them? Eh, I, I can't believe, I you know what? Handful. I know that you think that. I'm seeing 624 patrons right now. Remember when it's we were whatever, at 88 patrons? I can't yeah, believe. Yeah. The fact that you said that means like you were holding it in your mind that like it was my fault that we lost a single <laughs> no, patron. No, I'm thinking that's what they said. That's what they said. Oh uh, my but, god! Did they know. really say that? No, they, look at the comments. Yeah. 
Oh, well, I yeah. can't read the comments because I don't subscribe to our own Patreon. Oh, uh, okay. Well, I'll screenshot it for you. But a lot of people went in and yelled at him uh, when he uh, denounced us for wow. um, saying you, that there was a void at the, be- the center of the, the World Trade Center. But anyways, I think that when you say that everything was arranged in such a way that 9-11 was an inevitability, that it like had to happen... And maybe this is even going back to like the construction of the World Trade Center, but also the entire paradigm of like national security and all like the just this weird, creepy sense that the U.S. government deeply wanted and like needed something like this to happen. There are certain parallels, I think, with COVID, but also like with this research, which was so obsessed, the whole raison d'etre of like Peter Daszak and Ralph Barrick and all these people was to prevent the next pandemic. They even had, I watched a few ads that were like very ridiculous and like cringy uh, from EcoHealth Alliance. And there was one, I think from maybe 2018, the same year he was proposing this reckless shit that was literally titled like EcoHealth Alliance standing between you and the next pandemic. <laughs> so, you know, and, and basically that's what he says, like in the commercial and it's like creepy wow. British Yeah, accent. well, that's what a lot of this like disease X stuff was all about. Like, you know, eventually there's going to, they all knew that eventually there's going to be a pandemic, probably from a coronavirus. And that was yeah, like, what it's this not a matter of when it's not a matter yeah. of if it's a matter of when. And like Fauci would say this, they were all had it like, like they definitely had, this belief or they certainly wanted to instill this belief that, you know, I watch another very uh, layers of sus video, an interview from like 2018 where Greta Van Susteren was interviewing Dr. Fauci for voice of America, <laughs> which is just like, she's a Scientologist. Like it's on voice of America, which is CIA. Like, you know, um, there's just so many layers, but it's almost like I forgot that Fauci was kind of popping up in the media all these years, like whenever you need to talk about a potential pandemic. And there were all these like false start, almost like the towers getting bombed in 93. There were like these little trial runs of like, and I remember even the like hysteria that the media kind of tried to gin up back when it was like avian flu, H1N1, H5N1. Oh my God. You know, Zika. Remember Zika? Peter Daszak was like very invested, yeah, uh, both literally Zika. and figuratively. Yeah in that and Ebola Ebola in Liberia which is whenever anything horrible happens in Liberia rest assured there's probably something sus going on I'm just gonna leave it at that didn't like AIDS kind of like come through Liberia like to Haiti and like from Zaire to Liberia to Haiti that's interesting actually I just saw that the other day I think I shared it with you the other night I went on a real nostalgia trip and I found this like uh, this kind of uh, NIH almost like one of those VHS like lectures you could order in the mail and like have sent to you but it was like it was a young handsome Dr. Fauci in 1984 giving a lecture about AIDS and that was really fascinating to watch you can find it on YouTube and it's fascinating because I mean he had some controversial shit with AIDS like early on and I think Mm -hmm. even the gay rights kind of community uh, had some very strong words for him in those early days but you know you see that he was like he's been this guy since the 80s like he's the mr explainer i am the doctor (laughs) i'm the expert and you can see he's like really he's got he has a talent for it i am so sick of seeing him but 
I understand how he got to be like the J. Edgar Hoover of public health, which I think is really what he is. But then he he does mention at a certain point, he's talking about the, the populations that are at risk, and he does bring up like the origins of AIDS. And he brings up the Haitian connection, which I feel like I've heard discussed on maybe on Dave Emery before, because Dave Emery is a uh, an AIDS truther. And uh, I would say we'll get to it one day. I'm just going to leave it at that. We'll, we'll get well, to it. What I will say about AIDS but, is that AIDS is a great example of like uh the social dynamics how those are inseparable from a like virulent uh pandemic or epidemic because like if it weren't for the fact that which hasn't been the case like all the time like you know when more gay people were in the closet or when like social mores were different like aids wouldn't have been confined to gay communities in the same way like the way that it panned out like it was very specific in in the like the epidemiology that it eventually had uh, yeah so, no i mean it, it literally and he he does explain that and he's like you know and it's like this doesn't mean that the male <laughs> homosexual population uh, bad. is uh, yeah, exactly. bad but uh, it's just an epidemiological fact. Um, but yeah, no, by nature of like sexual interaction, they did eventually pretty much figure that out. But it's like that was interesting because that was a drug, that was a virus that almost seemed like aggressively targeted towards a couple very specific groups of people. And then later we found out that uh, sub-Saharan African people had a particular uh, susceptibility to dying and to contracting and dying from AIDS, whereas like certain subsets of pure Aryan blood people that had a certain gene that enabled them to survive the black plague or the black death were ultimately immune. And actually Fauci says this interestingly in his uh, 84 presentation that like for reasons we don't understand, some people can be exposed to the virus that causes AIDS without present. They can be exposed, but then not contract the virus. And not exhibit any symptoms of full-blown AIDS, uh, which was an official term back then, by the way. Full-blown um, but AIDS. Yeah, yeah full-blown <laughs> AIDS was like what he called it. Yeah, full-blown oh, wow, AIDS. Because like, yeah, there's AIDS where you're like pre-symptomatic maybe for years and then it like Full blows blown up. Full-blown AIDS, great, thank and, you. Uh, yeah, but he kind of says that without like, but it's kind of true uh, later on, like definitely with the, the African kind of genetic connection that it targeted that. It just starts to see like, hmm, who else in history like hated Afri- like black people, gays, like drug users, um, yeah. <laughs> who was really into like, uh, like unethical medical experimentation? Well, there's two I can think of, uh, the United States and Nazi Germany. But, you know, and just it, it had to, and then it, it, the, the social reaction that it provoked because it was so, t- so directly linked to uh, like a homosexual lifestyle or a drug using lifestyle that you got, you got an early sense of kind of what's coming back now with the way people are looking at the unvaccinated, you know, trying to de- say some people thinking that you should deny them. I mean, we talked about this, uh, in, uh, maybe our 9-11 episode, but yeah, basically, you know, thinking that people should be thrown out on the street. Well, they were doing that to AIDS patients as well. They were firing from, from their job. Um, I, I saw a little bit of another eighties, like, um, like a kind of AIDS documentary that was a very like humanizing one, but there was like a whole rally of people with stop LaRouche banners, like <laughs> a huge rally. Cause it was during the time that LaRouche wanted to pass a, he was sponsoring a ballot initiative in California to throw, HIV positive people in like quarantine camps. 
and like make them carry around like HIV passports that like declare their status and shit. And thankfully that got, um, defeated, right. yeah, you but yeah. yeah, but okay. But the, but the Haitian connection that he brings up is I don't think it involved Liberia, but it did involve Zaire and he makes yeah. some kind of weird comment that almost said like, you know, he doesn't really get political, but sometimes you can hear like a tell where he's like, well, there were a lot of guest workers in Zaire in the 1970s when they were getting a lot right. of Western investment. Part of that. Yeah, and, right. and after there was a revolution, uh, and uh, many of the the industries were uh, nationalized. Oh no! Uh, yeah, like no. This is how everything, no, every pandemic no. starts. Yeah, it uh, wasn't the, colonialism like in it, Africa. You know, it wasn't the right. Fact like that after Zaire used to be the Belgian Congo. Like that has nothing to do with it at all. Uh, yeah, right? right. Or like all the wars going on, that like all the civil wars and like revolutionary conflicts happening at the time. Kind of interesting. Kind of like a, a target area that like the CIA would be very interested in, in deploying bioweapons on. Anyways, um. Basically, somehow, uh, I guess um, this must have been in like the francophone part of Zaire because then uh, some of the individuals that were there, some of them went to Belgium and some of them went to Haiti. And then he claims that it sort of started like a mini outbreak in both of those countries. And then I forget if some of the Haitians then uh, emigrated to like Miami and then there was kind of an outbreak among the Haitian community there. But, you know, he, he pointed out that because they they were not this population were mostly not IV drug users or or gay. So they, they weren't the traditional at risk. But so they're like, they're, that's how. But he also throws out casually. Well, you know, it actually uh, the first samples of the virus that causes AIDS were found in the early 1970s in Zaire. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, uh, is that still believed? Or is that just something people were saying? Because I don't remember that being a part of the official story. Oh, I, mean, I know that people say it came from Africa. but I think people I, might I, say that AIDS is even older than that now. Um, maybe they do. Maybe they do. But I, I just have a lot of... Uh, there was a kind of um, based East German scientist in the 80s that I think... I want to say Dr. Siegel, who... Uh, started publishing a lot of articles about how it was a U.S. bioweapon created at Fort Detrick and then unleashed upon the homosexual population, In uh, which is interesting because some of the very earliest, like, earliest cases, not big outbreaks, were in, like, Baltimore, you know, not far from D.C. and all that. But then also, you know, New York and San Francisco, where it, it did spread the way everyone, you know, understands that it did. But uh, but just like the the tenuousness of that origin that he was saying in 1984 of like, yeah, well, it was in rural Central Africa and then some guys must have caught it somehow. And then they went to these other countries. He still couldn't say that, like, that's how it got to America. He was just talking about why it popped up separately in Belgium and Haiti. But just as a side note, I don't know if you remember, I forget if I've mentioned this before, but there was an interesting documentary a few years ago called Cold Case Hammerskold, which was about the uh, likely, the potential assassination of, uh, I think, the UN General Secretary Dag Hammerskold in, over the Congo in the early 1960s. His plane exploded. But Mm -hmm. uh, this uh, filmmaker who, uh, God, he's done a couple things, a lot of it to do with kind of like shady like post-colonial African. I think he's Danish or Dutch. 
and he wanted to get to the bottom of like was you know uh, Hammerskull assassinated by like Rhodesian or like South African intelligence or like the CIA or something and I remember he found this very mysterious like like South African like maritime research or like appreciation society <laughs> that was actually like a covert action front for like South African apartheid special forces and then he ended up interviewing a veteran of that organization that had fought in like Rhodesia and probably Angola and like other conflicts in the 70s and 80s and that guy confesses on camera he he I don't think he says that we created HIV but he says that our guerrilla units would go into villages in places we we're trying to like pacify or ethnically cleanse or whatever and pose as health officials giving out free vaccinations but they were actually injecting people with HIV. No. And he said something like that was considered uh, the clean, respectful uh, way to do genocide or something like that. I mean, this oh guy, I think his name was Alex Jones, but like not, Jones, <laughs> you know, but like, no, he, he <laughs> kind of really looks like he's like really sketched out during the whole, you know, like this guy looks like haunted and like, like a demon, kind of like the last narc documentary. There was that, that like corrupt cop who was just like, like, acting like he was possessed by the devil the whole time and he was talking about this and was like he was afraid to kind of say it but was like yeah that's what we did like we were trying to spread aids like around africa and in the in the black population so when you think about it that way like regardless of kind of you know people were thinking in this way in africa in the period of time when aids hiv allegedly just emerged out of the jungle yeah. You know, and my God, you could talk about Ebola. I haven't looked close enough into Ebola to make a bold statement on that. But still, like, so, yeah, when you think about the the potential nefariousness and when you cross over with, like, defense spending, biowarfare, they all claim that we shut down our biowarfare uh, research in 1969, like Nixon did. But that's really not true in the like it. We weren't stockpiling anthrax, I think, after 1969. So maybe in that sense, we stopped, but we didn't stop researching and creating shit. That we absolutely did not stop. And so then, you know, it's, it's kind of a clear line from that type of like DARPA Pentagon type research to Eco Health Alliance, um, particularly through uh, David Franz, the guy who ran Fort Detrick in the 90s. And what and also, oh, the great thing about David Franz was he was one of the inspectors that went to Iraq to look for WMDs and chemical weapons. <laughs> wow. And he's actually, he, he was very good friends with Judith Miller, the sketchy New York Times reporter that lied about WMDs. And he's actually one of the, one of the experts that was quoted in the early 2000s talking about Saddam's mobile chemical weapons labs. And his mobile bioweapons labs and shit. Remember that oh, Colin no. Powell was like showing grainy pictures of? That, he was one of the sources for that shit. And, you know, really hyping it up. So it's like, these, this is the caliber of people, of experts that we're fucking dealing with. And, um, and it's, it's some dark shit. This past Friday, a long-anticipated and much-debated report by the World Health Organization was delayed again. It was supposed to be a kind of post-mortem on a trip to China by a WHO-led team of international scientists which took place earlier this year. The question, how did SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, originate? 
Among the leading theories examined, was it accidentally leaked from a lab in Wuhan, or did it come from infected animals in a wet market there? The WHO inquiry was far from comprehensive because, as it has done since the beginning of the outbreak, the Chinese government withheld information. If the virus originated in animals, one of the mysteries has been how did it travel the thousand miles from the bat caves in southern China to Wuhan? The WHO team thinks it found the answer. What we found as part of this WHO mission to China is that there is a pathway. Peter Dajak, a member of the WHO team and an expert on how animal viruses jump to humans, has worked on previous viral outbreaks, including in China. He says the pathway leads not to the lab in Wuhan, but from wildlife farms in southern China directly to the wet market in Wuhan, the Huanan seafood market. The theory is that somehow that virus got from a bat into one of these wildlife farms, and then the animals were shipped into the market, and that they contaminated people while they were handling them, chopping them up, killing them, whatever you do before you cook an animal. Wild animals. Yeah, these like what? They're traditional food. Civets, these are like ferrets. There's also an animal called a ferret badger. Rabbits, which we know can carry the virus. Those animals were coming into the market from farms over a thousand miles away. Were you able to test any of the animals found in the Wuhan market for the virus? Well, the China team had done that, and they found a few animals left in freezers. They tested them, they were negative. But the fact that those animals are there is the clue. But there's no uh, direct evidence that any of those animals were actually infected with the bat virus. Correct. Now what we've got to do is go to those farms and investigate, talk to the farmers, talk to their relatives, test them, see if there were spikes in virus there first. So the team doesn't actually know if any of the farmers or the truckers were ever infected. No one knows it. No one's been there, no one's asked them, no one's tested them. That's to be done. Despite those unanswered questions, the WHO team and their Chinese counterparts all agreed that this hypothesis of a pathway from bat caves to butcher shops like these is the most likely explanation. Something like 75% of emerging diseases come from animals into people. We've seen it before, we've seen it in China with SARS. Is the lab leak theory any more or less speculative than the, your pathway? For an accidental leak that, that then led to COVID to happen, the virus that causes COVID would need to be in the lab. They never had any evidence of the virus like COVID in the lab. They never had the COVID-19 virus Not in prior to lab? the outbreak, no, absolutely. No evidence of that. Jamie Metzel begs to differ, pointing to the lab's own reports that it sent field researchers to the bat caves who brought back samples with viruses. We know that among those viruses, one of them is the virus that is genetically most related to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. But most related isn't the same, right? Yes, exactly. But we do know that there were nine viruses, at least, that were brought back. And it's extremely possible uh, that among these viruses is a virus that's much more closely related to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And when I 
put all those pieces together and said, hey, wait a second, this is a real possibility. We need to be exploring it. The pathway that Peter Daszak and the team have come up with, now that sounds plausible. Oh, it's, it's certainly plausible. Very seriously plausible. No, it is plausible. Let's just say that that theory is correct. You would have had an outbreak, perhaps in southern China, where they have those animal farms. You may have seen some kind of evidence of an outbreak along the way. And there wasn't? There wasn't. Metzl says Peter Dajak has a conflict of interest because of his longtime collaboration with the Wuhan lab. I'm on the WHO team for a reason. And, you know, if you're going to work in China on coronaviruses and try and understand their origins, you should involve the people who know the most about that. And for better or for worse, I do. He says the team did look into the leak theory during a visit with lab scientists and deemed it extremely unlikely. We met with them, we said, do you audit the lab? And they said, annually? Did you audit it after the outbreak? Yes. Was anything found? No. Do you test your staff? Yes. No but you're just taking their word for it. Well, what else can we do? There's a limit to what you can do, and we went right up to that limit. We asked them tough questions. They weren't vetted in advance, uh, and the answers they gave we found to be um, believable, um, correct, and convincing. But weren't the Chinese engaged in a cover-up? They destroyed evidence, they punished scientists who were trying to give evidence on this very question of the origin. Well, that wasn't our task, to find out if China had covered up the origin No, no, I know. Issue. I'm just saying, doesn't that make you wonder? We didn't see any evidence of any um, false reporting or cover-up in the work that we did in China. Were there Chinese government minders in the room? every time you were asking questions. There were Ministry of Foreign Affairs staff in the room throughout our stay, absolutely. They were there to make sure everything went smoothly from the China side. Or to make sure they weren't telling you the whole truth and nothing but you, the truth. You sit in a room with people who are scientists and you know what a scientific statement is and you know what a political statement is. Uh, we had no problem distinguishing between the two. Now I think it might be good to talk about some of these individuals a little more one that i wasn't aware of until like literally yesterday but i did kind of a deep dive a little bit of a deep dive on him last night is the aforementioned david franz the former commander at fort dietrich in the 90s and i was able to confirm here he is a science advisor to eco health alliance um it's really runs the game and if you look at like their their partners and stuff it's like nato and like yeah every single research uh institution from columbia the university of wisconsin uc davis um princeton harvard johns hopkins like everybody is connected with this group you know as well as the nih cdc pentagon usaid etc and yeah, they do lots of stuff in Southeast Asia, I guess, because one of their whole proposals was about doing work in, in Southeast Asia, and they seem to have a lot of sponsors in, in Thailand and Malaysia, too, or academic. Yeah, Peter Daszak, I think, built a biolab in Malaysia going back to maybe the early 2000s. He was actually the subject of an interesting 60 Minutes piece, I think in 2003, that they like revisited when COVID started because Peter Daszak gave some prescient, chilling comments about what kept him up at night in the early 2000s. I think at the time he was in Malaysia studying MERS 
and this is right after the SARS outbreak in China. And I think he's, he said something basically along the lines of like, like, it is my greatest fear that a novel bat coronavirus will rampage out across the world as a result of human farming and development and we'll be totally unprepared and then what's his name from uh scott what's his name 60 it's minutes like, like absolutely chilling my, to go back to like the inevitability thing like it's just so odd that i mean i guess yeah like people didn't listen but i mean it seems like nobody ever listens to any of this stuff and like you do hear about it you do hear about like the climate issue like you know it's something that people bring up again and again but in very extreme terms uh you know it's often raised but no one seems to be doing like anything really about it it's just like constantly but nonetheless reminding us that it's looming and then yeah well if you ever get dashik there's a lot of interviews with him and if you can get him to talk about kind of well like how can we stop the next pandemic because remember he's the one standing between you and the next pandemic right he his two answers are basically like give me a lot of money to do gain of function research and investigate like rare bat coronaviruses and also like this will not uh this will not cease to be a threat until we solve the industrial problems with the environment etc so he's like he's one of these like kind of extinction rebellion friendly kind of guys who is, you know, like I said, he believes in the one health philosophy, that there is no distinction between animal health and human health. And it almost sounds like some Nazi, like, back to nature shit, honestly. Like, I could see it, you could easily twist it, I think, without going too far in in that direction, you know? And, uh, and, and kind of like there's a little bit of a misanthropic, a little bit of a misanthropic vibe to maybe some of the way these scientists like to talk about pandemics and it's like we're causing these problems and like until we learn to stop having like savage wet markets and cutting down rainforests and stuff it's like inevitable that we're just going to come into contact with exotic zoonotic viruses that are going to devastate us and like it almost like you know maybe on the radical fringe of uh, people that kind of believe that type of environmental stuff almost sometimes you can get detected kind of thing of like we we deserve this for being the dirty little greedy pigs that we are like eating meat and building cities and all this other stuff which of course there's like all kinds of I mean, critiques I, you can make of and like you know environmental deserve, destruction uh do we deserve it that's a complicated question but yeah i mean i don't know like the the basic idea that like yeah the in like the way that you treat the environment like has consequences like that i think ultimately is something that's true but at the same time for instance like what uh you described like assuming that their real plan was to like you know have all these like bats out in caves and like to do this dangerous research like that is kind of meddling with nature like i get it that like instead of like you know stopping the actual like interaction or like the human beings pushing into like environments where there's a lot of like coronavirus infected bats or something, you mm-hmm. know, uh, talking, opening that conversation instead. It's like, let's get a bunch of money from DARPA about how to create like a super lethal virus so that then we can like, you know, figure out how to vaccinate. It seems like kind of like putting the cart before the horse a little bit or like a very roundabout yeah. solution. Like, I don't think that Bill Gates, like practice, as we talked about in the past, 
Like, he's not really, he talks about it. He, like, invests in all the things that are going to profit from the disasters that are going to ensue. But is he actually doing anything about it? Like, doesn't seem like it, you know? Like, that's, like, why don't you address the, why don't you go to the the, he's doing something. He's doing something, but is he doing something to sincerely address that problem? Or is he aggrandizing his own power and influence and kind of profiting off of these crises and to an extent like i mean is that his whole kind of approach to like the the art of philanthropy because he i think he's given these people have gotten bill gates money and if you look on the science and policy advisor board of eco health alliance one person you find is dr scott dowell who is the deputy director for surveillance and epidemiology at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. There might be a couple other Bill and Melinda Gates people um, in the EcoHealth kind of group. I think that guy also hilariously co-signed the conspiracy letter in The Lancet, Uh, I noticed. Mm -hmm. Um, But Dr. David Franz is on there as well. And uh, there's also people from the Rockefeller Foundation. There's people that uh, handled like the emerging, they were like the director of the emerging threats program at USAID. Yeah, Dr. Ariel Pablos Mendez, or he was the former assistant administrator for global health at USAID. And then there's just multiple like spooky people. The chair of the board for Ego Health is Dennis Carroll, who is the director of USAID's Pandemic Influenza and Emerging Threats Unit. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And the, all the other people have uh, ties to the Scowcroft Institute of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M. You know, Brent Scowcroft, that old um, Bush lackey, you know, back in the day who was involved in uh, dismantling the Soviet Union uh, in the 1980s. And actually not the only person because then it goes a little further because I think this environmentalist thing is interesting. Their obsession, a lot of these people... To the extent that they talk about anything else, they kind of put the blame on humanity's collective degradation of the natural environment. And, you know, I think in his view, if he if you really believe the one health philosophy, then we're doing harm to ourselves by harming nature, which, you know, is true in a certain way. But when you look at what these guys are going out and doing. But anyways, uh, the, the thing that I found an interesting thing that Sam Husseini highlighted It was like a Zoom uh, conversation from 2020 that was hosted by the Columbia Earth Institute. Doesn't that name just make you feel optimistic? Uh, And that, I think, one of the principal people running that is Jeffrey Sachs. Now, I've always seen him as like a slippery fucking individual because nowadays he's like a Bernie Sanders supporter. He's always talking about like stopping climate change and like how we need to think about ourselves is like probably, he probably says some bullshit about like we're spaceship earth or something. And he's generally regarded as like a pretty like respectable academic and somebody who's like kind of on like the humanistic left, but what never gets talked about and it's like buried deep in his Wikipedia profile is he was like the neoliberal wonk Harvard professor that was brought over to Eastern Europe in the late 80s and early 90s to literally like advise everybody on privatizing their economies, which Mm. like they did and resulted in absolute like economic catastrophe. And he's, I think somebody referred to him as quote, a cold hearted neoliberal. Um, What does it have to do? Is he a, what is his field? 
Well, uh, he is an economist. He's an oh, economist, but he's nice. he's kind of blown it up to more like he's a systems economist. He's a I holistic okay, economist. Yeah, got, right. you know, real yeah, real econ- wealth is like respecting Mother Earth, also, but it's still well, making I profits. Mean, economics um, is economos, you know, the law of the world, right? So. It's a bourgeois pseudoscience, but uh, yes, yes, yeah. I guess so. Um, yeah, the laws that we tell ourselves in order to live. Um, and he is hosting this talk, and very hilariously and kind of off-brand for Jeff Sachs is uh, he has Peter Daszak on to talk about COVID, like early on when it's happening. And he says some interesting, like, things that could be self-incriminating if you're inclined to read it that way. But the weirdest thing is he starts out with a bunch of quotes, one of which is from Donald Rumsfeld. And he quotes, like, the famous known <laughs> unknown comment, which he called uh, Rumsfeld's prescient speech, when in fact mm-hmm. it was it was merely a press conference. But he quotes that at length and then talks about how, like, Donald, uh, Donald Rumsfeld was, like, a visionary and that he sees his own work kind of in a similar way. Uh, yeah, he, he emphasized the parallels between his own crusade and Rumsfeld, since, according to Dashak, the, quote, potential for unknown attacks is the same for viruses. Dashik then proceeded with a not terribly subtle pitch for over a billion dollars. This money would support a fledgling virus hunting and surveillance project of his, the Global Virome Project, a, quote, doable project, he assured watchers, given the cost of the pandemic to governments and various industries. And, oh, I'm actually, I think I might have mixed that up. I was looking at the board connections of the Global Virome Project, of which... He's the director. That chair is the director of USAID's Pandemic Influenza and Emerging Threats Unit, and also has uh, Dr. Jennifer Gr- uh, Jennifer Grady, the deputy director of surveillance data and epidemiology at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's malaria team, and a former assistant administrator at USAID, and a, the Scowcroft guy. So there's actually, I think, two separate people that are in the surveillance and epidemiology wing of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that are working on the boards of Dashuk organizations. So it's like you start to get interlocks going on here, right? Like mm-hmm. all these people are interconnected. And like Global Viron Project, isn't that great? Like what could go wrong with that? You know, he just wants to collect every single virus in the world so that anybody can work on it and just yeah. wants a billion dollars to set it up. It's no big deal. But yeah, so in that talk, yeah, he says a, a kind of like, a, like Jeff Sachs is even like, I won't, you know, I won't, I'll agree to disagree with you on quoting Donald Rumsfeld. But, you know, but then again, like, I feel like uh, somebody like Jeff Sachs is kind of emblematic of a kind of academic intellectual elite who's like kind of on the le- the liberal left and and somehow has acquired this like good reputation in these bona fides when like really he made his bones off like gutting the soviet economy and privatizing it for like western banks and oil companies and like destroying the social safety net and like shutting down every quote-unquote unproductive factory in poland he was actually invited by solidarność initially that was his first project to advise the brave cia-backed you know dissenters uh in the People's Republic of Poland in their transition to a market economy, which, of course, he advised, I think he advised them, he advised uh, Gorbachev and then Yeltsin and just advised, like, maximum privatization of, of absolutely everything and, like, helped them wriggle out of their IMF debt by basically selling off all their infrastructure and public utilities and everything else. So it's like this, 
that guy's got that hanging on his conscience, but nobody seems to mind, even though, like, by even mainstream accounts, it failed miserably and caused, like, economic, total economic chaos. I mean, if you want to blame the rise of Putin on anybody, maybe you should blame liberals. If any are listening right now, maybe they're not. Uh, Maybe you should blame uh, Jeffrey Sachs for that. But now he's on a very high ivory tower perch at Columbia University, which has this Earth Institute, which sounds very Esalen, right? And they do all kinds of stuff in regards to, like, public health, economics, like, this kind of kind of shit that, like, Bill Gates seems to be interested in. And so, yeah, they were just yucking it up and having a great time together. And, you know, Peter Daszak was uh, shit-talking all the conspiracy theorists. The other one, um, okay, going back for a second to David Franz, because I watched his lecture from 2016. And he he's still, like, a private, he runs a consultant company that I forget what it's called it's like S, it's like SPD Global in Gettysburg Pennsylvania so he's he's a true patriot but in in this lecture from 2016 there were some interesting things that he mentioned that are that, that would seem to be contradictory or maybe like self-incriminating in this lecture about dual use gain of function challenges so oh, first yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I read his uh his essay or his his longer paper about dual use stuff. yeah yeah, he did. He did publish uh, yeah, a paper basically, about that. Yeah, that's just basically like the idea of like scientific research that could be used both like in a like a medical like way to help people, and also like a you know a military like weaponized way. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's that's what dual use is. Yeah, something that could be made for totally benign purposes, but also the same exact thing you create could be weaponized into a bioweapon. So, you know, they're supposed to have, that, that's what that uh, C-3PO or whatever the fuck it was called, that that guidance after they, you know, put a pause on the funding was supposed to address. But yeah, so he's talking like, uh, like potential pandemic preparedness or something. Yeah, P-3CO, uh, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So keep in mind this lecture, which I think was maybe for one of his classes at George Mason University. Uh, this is during the moratorium before Trump gets in, but he talks about a few different things and like the controversies in the early 2010s around this type of research. And you, you definitely get the vibe, like, cause he mentions multiple times throughout that, like you said, he's of the mind as of are many of his colleagues that these regulations are onerous and ridiculous and they're shitty and he yeah, would love to see them go away. We used to call it dual use, you know, we used to just call it biology. Uh, yeah, like it just, it, research says. is research. He's a real scientific purist, you know, just research is research and like thou shalt not impede the progress of research. And if you do, you're anti-science, you know, mm, sound familiar? Yeah, um, this just, is so actually, he, he's on board yeah, I actually it. have his paper right here. This is pretty interesting. Uh, this is like, you know, he first says like Dirk has always existed, dual use uh, research. He talks about how we, it's always existed, but we just called it different things. Uh, he says in the past, when surprises occurred in biology or any of the scientists, uh, any of the scientists, responsible scientists typically acted responsibly, neither trying to gain undue attention for themselves nor seeking to misuse the new information. There have been and always will be irresponsible and even criminal minds in all professions and societies. But the vast majority of humans involved in the life sciences will continue to contribute positively for the good of mankind. And then he asks, uh, what has changed in the U.S. and the world? 
Dartmouth professor Kendall Hoyt, PhD, in her book Longshot, asked the questions. Why was the U.S. government so successful in developing and fielding vaccines from the 1940s to the 1950s, and why has it been so difficult in recent years? It cannot be the technologies, which have been greatly improved during the period in which progress in fielding has slowed. One would expect us to be better and faster today than 50 years ago. It turns out there may be several factors that explain the earlier successes and difficulties today. For example, simpler technologies and less complex approval protocols. However, Dr. Hoyt made two important conclusions, which suggest more behavioral than technical explanations. First, she learned that champion-led research, in which a single dedicated individual shepherds a vaccine candidate from the bench all the way through development, clinical trials, and licensure, was much more common. Second, Dr. Hoyt learned that these champions were working within collaborative communities. In these communities, scientists worked in teams and openly shared helpful information within and between those teams, even if this information might help make competitors successful. Sounds kind of like the Wuhan Virology Lab. Anyway, uh, <laughs> likely major contributor to the, yeah, competitors like the U.S. and China, you know, champions mm-hmm. like Xi Zongli, the bat lady. A likely major <laughs> contributor to both the motivation and the champions and the formation of communities was the patriotism and sense of earnest urgency of a nation at war during World War II. And he has a parenthesis, WW2. All right, thank you. <laughs> Many of the scientists who had served their country in military laboratories, such as the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, then moved to commercial enterprise. The motivation and cultural norm in the workplace that was learned under excellent leadership in a time of great national struggle likely contributed to the burst of commercial productivity after the war. It is my belief that leadership and communities of trust not only lead to more productivity, but also reduce the potential impact of Dirk and even the threat of insider misconduct or criminality. And when he talks about that, like the whole anthrax thing is obviously looming over this because yeah, he mentions that thing. in his speech uh, yeah, yeah, a little yeah. bit. He he can't really escape it. I mean, he says he he knew. Um, um, the main guy who what who ended up killing himself, the scientist. Uh, uh, he Ivins, worked for him. Yeah, Doctor. Yeah, yeah, Bruce right, I- yeah. Bruce Ivans or Evans. Um, yeah. And then I think it was like Assad was an Arab um, uh, a scientist at Fort Detrick who actually was brought under investigation in 2001 when the corona uh, when the anthrax attacks happened there's a great series on if anyone wants to read more specifically about this uh, on organicconsumers.org called the gain of function hall of shame that has um like seven or eight individuals yes. most of whom we've name checked already uh but it does have a, a separate one david r franz eco health alliance's anthrax era biological weapon scientist and it goes into like kind of a very interesting story. We had to do a whole separate episode about the anthrax scare and the susness of that and how convenient it was and everything and what a boon it was for the biotechnology industry and all these researchers and stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, David Franz. <clears throat> okay, so yeah, I'll just read a little bit from here. In this installment of the Gain of Function Hall of Shame, we had fellow anthrax alumnus David R. Franz, now an advisor to EcoHealth Alliance, the corona, coronavirus hunting funder of the Wuhan Institute of Virology that we covered in our profile, Peter Daschik. Franz is a retired Army colonel who served at U.S. AMRID beginning in 1987. He was chief of the Cardiorespiratory Toxicology Department, chief of the Toxicology Division, deputy commander, and commander from 1995 to 1998. His years as commander overlap with those of the covert biological weapons programs described in Judith Miller's book, Germs, Biological Weapons in America's Secret War, and he was a source for much of the information about them in the book. 
These included Projects Jefferson, the genetic engineering of vaccine-resistant anthrax, something the U.S. military had been doing since the 80s, Clear Vision, the production of biobomblets that could be used to disperse anthrax, and Bite Size and Bacchus, or, or BACUS, Biotechnology Activity Characterization by Unconventional Signatures, the production of anthrax simulant outside the lab as a terrorist cell might. In 1998, Franz left U.S. Amherst to work at the Southern Research Institute, a Pentagon biodefense contractor. SRI was one of the labs that, like U.S. Amrid, could have been a source of the virulent Ames anthrax used in the 2001 attacks. We know this because in 2004, it accidentally sent live spores of this strain to a children's hospital in Oakland. This made news, and an SRI spokesperson was quoted as saying they had been working with the pathogen since 2001. David Franz was understood to be within the circle of potential suspects, but he was never fingered in the FBI's investigation. To this day, no one knows who did it. There were three people variously blamed for the attack, but none of them were ever charged with the crime, let alone brought to trial. Ayad Assad, Stephen Hatfill, and Bruce Ivins each worked under Franz at U.S. Amrid. So, this section, the Arab Patsy. Whoever orchestrated the anthrax attacks wanted them blamed on Islamic terrorists. Each of the anthrax-filled letters read, Death to America, Death to Israel, Allah is great. After 9-11, but before the anthrax attacks had been discovered, I know, right? Um, the FBI received a letter warning that a former U.S. Amrit scientist, the Egyptian-born Ayad Assad, was planning a biological attack. Laura Rosen reported in Salon, quote, Dr. Assad is a potential biological terrorist, the letter stated, according to Assad and his lawyer McDermott. The letter was received by the FBI in Quantico, Virginia, but Assad did not learn from the FBI where it had been mailed from. Quote, I have worked with Dr. Assad, and I heard him say he has a vendetta against the U.S. government and that if anything happens to him, he told his sons to carry on. According no. to Assad, I just like, don't go to the mall on Halloween and yeah, don't go exactly. to the World Trade Center on 9-11. Yeah, yeah, my friend's right. Muslim boyfriend said. Right, uh, according yes. to Assad... Quote, the letter writer clearly knew my entire background, my training in both chemical and biological agents, my security clearance, what floor where I work now, that I have two sons, what train I take to work, and where I live. The letter warned the FBI to stop me, he said. At the time, Assad was involved in a lawsuit against U.S. Amrid, claiming that he had gone to his supervisor, David Franz, asking him to stop his co-workers, Charles Brown, Marion Rippey, and Philip Zack, who had formed a camel club to harass Assad with racially charged and sexually explicit poems and objects. He charged that Franz had, quote, kicked me out of his office and slammed the door in my face and later fired him in retaliation for his complaints. The FBI quickly cleared Assad of any connection to the anthrax attacks. The FBI never tried to trace the source of the accusatory letter, even though it may have been one of the best leads on who done it, As the Hartford Courant reported, Assad said he believes the note's timing makes the author a suspect in the anthrax attacks, and he is convinced that details of his work contained in the letter mean the author must be a former Fort Detrick colleague. Brown said that he doesn't know who sent the letter, but that Assad's nationality and expertise in biological agents made him an obvious subject of concern after September 11th. Don Foster, an expert on language forensics assisting the FBI, searched through documents by some 40 U.S. Amrit employees and found writings by a female officer that looked like a perfect match. Foster doesn't name names, so we don't know who the female officer was. As Assad's Wikipedia page puts it, quote, he did not name Marion Rippey directly. Okay, maybe it was Marion Rippey. One thing we do know is that racial harassment wasn't the only thing David Franz let Rippey and Zach get away with under his watch. 
During the same time that their camel club was active, an internal investigation revealed that 27 sets of specimens were reported missing at Fort Detrick and that secret research was being done in the lab outside of work hours. Dr. Mary Beth Downs told investigators that she had come to work several times in January and February 1992 to find that someone had been in the lab at odd hours, clumsily using the sophisticated electron microscope to conduct some kind of off-the-books research. After one weekend in February, Downs discovered that someone had been in the lab using the microscope to take photos of slides, and had apparently forgotten to reset a feature in the microscope that imprints each photo with a label. After taking a few pictures of her own slides that morning, Downs was surprised to see Antrax 005 emblazoned on her negatives. Downs also noted that an automatic counter on the camera, like an odometer on a car, had been rolled back to hide the fact that pictures had been taken over the weekend. She wrote of her findings in a memo to Langford, noting that whoever was using the microscope was either in a big hurry or didn't know what they were doing. Documents from the inquiry show that one unauthorized person who was observed entering the lab building that night was... Lieutenant Colonel Philip Zack, who at the time no longer worked at Fort Detrick. A surveillance camera recorded Zack being let in at 8.40 p.m. on January 23, 1992, apparently by Dr. Marion Rippey, a lab pathologist and close friend of Zack's, according to a report filed by a security guard. Of course, there were other female scientists at AMRID who Don Foster may have been referring to, one is Patricia Fellows, a scientist who provided evidence that placed Bruce Ivins at the scene of the crime and who worked on anthrax with David Franz at the Southern Research Institute. And, you know, it goes on to talk about Stephen Hatfill and the lawsuits he had to deal with. I remember reading about that years ago. Um, it says Hatfill worked at U.S. Amherst from 97 and 99, overlapping with the years Franz was in command. In the years immediately preceding the anthrax attacks, Hatfield and Franz were each working on government anthrax projects with private contractors, as the Baltimore Sun reported. Dr. Stephen J. Hatfield, the former Fort Detrick biodefense researcher, commissioned a 1999 study that described a fictional terrorist attack in which an envelope containing weapons-grade anthrax is opened in an office. The study <laughs> written by a veteran, dark winter all over again, the study written by a veteran of the old U.S. bioweapons program was submitted to Hatfield and a colleague at Science Applications International Corp, or, or SAIC, the McLean, Virginia defense contractor where he then worked. It discusses the danger of anthrax spores spreading through the air and the requirements for decontamination after various kinds of attacks. The author, William C. Patrick III, describes placing 2.5 grams of Basilisk Globigii, an anthrax simulant, in a standard business envelope, slightly more than the estimated amount of anthrax in each of the letters that killed five people last fall. During the same period, Franz was at the Southern Research Institute, also SRI, which was working on an anthrax project for Pentagon's Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, DARPA. SRI has received $640.3 million in government funding since 2001. In 1999-2001, DARPA contracted with SRI and other firms for micro-encapsulated anthrax. In their 2012 article in the peer-reviewed Journal of Bioterrorism and Biodefense, Evidence for the source of the 2001 attack anthrax, Martin E. Hugh Jones, Barbara Hatch Rosenberg, and Stuart Jacobson linked the forensic evidence from the attack anthrax to the microencapsulation techniques developed by the DARPA contractors, i.e. friends. The significance was that microencapsulation would explain the silicon in the attack anthrax. Furthermore, there were no spores containing silicon in the, in the anthrax handled by Bruce Ivins. Eventually, the facts established 
that the attack anthrax was micro-encapsulated with a silicon coating, but in the fall of 2002, the FBI reported to Congress that there was, quote, no additive in the Senate anthrax at all. The Bureau based this on the word of Ken Alabeck, who said that he examined electron micrographs of the anthrax spores sent to Senator Daschle and saw no silica. Was he blinded by fear of self-incrimination? By the way, Alabeck is a Russian bioweapon scientist recruited to work for the U.S. That's also something that Franz was intimately involved in. He's, like, boasted about it. He was in charge of bringing over all the top Soviet, like, bio-warfare scientists. Oh, yeah when uh, Jeffrey Sachs was, like, gutting their economy. Like, all these guys were just, like, uh, stripping the USSR for parts, including their scientists. Um, And so David Franz ended up working with Alabek on that DARPA contract for anthrax in 1999 to 2001 with another former U.S. AMRIT commander, Charles L. Bailey. Their firm, Advanced Biosystems, was the prime contractor for the DARPA project. Oh, I see. So they worked... They, they were in one thing called Advanced Biosystems, and then Franz's SRI was a subcontractor. And then Bruce Ivins died of a Tylenol overdose in 2008, and the FBI announced their conclusion. He was solely responsible for the 2001 anthrax attacks. Well, I mean, so this guy, um, this guy's still on an advisory board for the Pentagon to this day, in addition to being, you know, in private practice and an advisor to EcoHealth and all that stuff. So, oof, you know, like quite uh, quite a resume there. And and you see, like, in t- talking about lab leaks, like, just that circumstantial evidence alone, you had this, like, these, like, racist employees who pro- potentially yeah. framed an Arab scientist who they didn't like and in the meantime, like, maybe stole some anthrax, which that they had proof of people doing it before in the earlier 90s. Hmm. Yeah. It's just interesting, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, in terms of what I was just uh, reading before from, like, his essay on Dirk that he wrote, when did he, when exactly did he write this? I guess this was... It was, like, maybe uh, 2015 or something, 2016. Um, yeah, this is going to be his bio. It's the St. University School of Law. I guess he... Uh, yeah, he's citing things from 2013, so, yeah, I guess it was around then. Um... But yeah, uh, just after what I had read before, you know, he went on to like complain basically about how like the authority is distributed. Like he basically says that like, you know, beginning just before 9-11 and spreading to other government security laboratories, the authority to make decisions locally has been pulled to within the beltway while responsibility has stayed with the laboratories. So he's complaining, like, relative experienced managers... Where, where, where? Inexperienced managers are now often assigned to manage research product portfolios within the laboratories from afar. And he wants, like, laboratory directors and commanders to be in charge, you know? So he says they knew their programs. They were dedicated to their missions, and they loved their people. So basically, there's too much oversight. Today, good people hold some of those positions within leadership experience from other military sectors, but lack technical credibility. In other cases, qualified leaders are given responsibility, but adequate authority to do their jobs is withheld. Yeah, this is kind of what you were saying about how, like, we can't just regulate it away, you know? He says... uh, yeah. Like the rest of the science, the technical advances in biology are incremental but cumulative and generally not reversible. One cannot put the toothpaste of the global life sciences enterprise back in the tube. Like physical and chemical phenomena in nature, biological ones challenge us as a human race and exact a toll on health and life. More than 9 million and 50 plus people who die globally each year die of infectious diseases. 
Plant losses from pests and pathogens alone are believed to result in monetary losses of approximately 20 to 33 billion annually in the U.S. So the challenges of disease are not only related directly to humans. And then he says something very odd, which is, Our experience with intentional disease, biological warfare, terrorism, and crime, is much more limited than our experience with naturally occurring disease. Historians believe that at least 10,000 to 12,000 Chinese died from biological warfare attacks by the Japanese during World War II. I mean, that is true and terrible. Mm -hmm. But then he just goes and says, We know that five humans died as a result of the anthrax letters sent through the U.S. mail system in 2001. Uh, You know, I bet you do know. Yeah, but it's weird that, like, those are the only two examples that he used. Like, there's That's definitely true. worse, like, agree- more egregious uses of bioweapons by the United States. But I guess... Uh, like, Korean War germ warfare, yeah, like, Agent Orange in Vietnam, yeah, what, like, I guess, depleted uranium, if you want to go does there. Does Agent Orange count as a biological weapon because it's not, like, a virus, you know? Yeah, it's true. It's just a toxic chemical. It's a, it's a carcinogenic yeah, chemical. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it was a defoliant mm. technically, but it did give everybody cancer and kill them. Mm. And well, I don't know. I mean, it is a biological toxin, or I guess it's like a toxin that has like a technical definition, which yeah. is like not the same as a poison. Uh, True, toxin has yeah. to be produced within living cells or organisms. So toxicants are not the same. But anyway. That's true, that's true. So the relative emphasis the government plays in these health threats vary with the perception of them. The perception held by politicians and news media are particularly powerful. Very true. But, yeah, then he, he kind of retells the whole uh, story of... Uh, I don't think that he mentioned uh, Ahmad Assad. Um, no, he didn't and, mention... In his uh, 2016 lecture, he mentioned the anthrax stuff and talked about Bruce Ivins. Uh, he did not mention um, Ayad Assad uh, a- at all. But he actually did curiously say, like... And I don't, I still don't know if he did it. I don't know. I mean, he, he said, mentioned, the, the, uh, he he said the circumstantial evidence is overwhelming but I can't say for sure. There are people that worked with him and I knew him as well as anybody that, uh, that think he didn't do it. And then he kind of moved on. Yeah. He kind of did say that Ivan's didn't do it. Well, first he talks about Hatfill, right? And he says, mm-hmm. Dr. Hatfill filed a lawsuit against the New York times and Nicholas D. Kristoff, a New York times reporter for statements. Kristoff published suggesting that Hatfill was the likely culprit. The case was dismissed on summary judgment on January 12, 2007, based on the fact that Dr. Hatfill was a public figure. Dr. Hatfield also filed a lawsuit against Donald Foster, a forensic linguist who stated in a 2003 Reader's Digest article that Hatfield's travels and the postmarks in certain anthrax hoax letters closely correlated. The hmm. suit was apparently settled at a court. Uh, so he is kind of tr- seeming to implicate this guy. But then he's like, the FBI began to focus his attention on Dr. Ivins, an anthrax vaccine specialist, as the questioning and surveillance of Dr. Ivins' family and himself continued. The pressure on the FBI to solve the nearly seven-year-old case intensified. During this time, we learn much more about the life of the hardworking and selfless but quirky scientists so many of us knew. (laughs) On the morning of August 2nd, 2008, the Frederick News Post opened with the headline, Anthrax Case Turns. Dr. Ivans had committed suicide. So it does seem like he kind of has like a warmth, like he's caught like a... The hardworking and selfless, but quirky scientist so many of us knew. You mean the anthrax, like, attacker? Like, what? I, like, very, very strange. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he kind of... And he doesn't... Um, what, about, like, what about Philip Zack? What about Philip Zack? Who, I mean, if we're going to believe that article uh, that they... Let me see. Yeah, Dr. Mary Beth Downs said when she found that anthrax 005 thing on her microscope... And then they looked, 
the documents from the inquiry show that one unauthorized person went to the lab that night and it was Lieutenant Colonel Philip Zack, one of the members of the Camel Club, and he was let in at 8.40 p.m. by Dr. Marion Rippey, who that same guy, Don Foster, the forensic dude, said that the language of the letter blaming Assad, they're always blaming Assad, basically closely matched her... Well, they said a female scientist, but this this article is kind of insinuating that it probably was Marion Rippey, who was also a member of the Camel Club. You know, so they're a bunch of racists that hated this Arab scientist. And that was in 1992. So that would have been nine years before the anthrax attacks. But, like, that, that seems pretty damning. So it's weird to, like, not... I, both the FBI and David Franz have nothing to say about these two suslords. Yeah, in this paper he goes on basically to say that, like, their regulation, like, you know, to try to limit, like, things like the anti-sex from happening again, like, you know, is just so, like, you know, it's so wrong to, like, oppress. Basically, he draws, like, a direct comparison between, like, Muslims after 9-11 and, like, the scientists who were being oppressed, pretty much, when, like, he kind of oversaw like an instance of like anti-muslim bigotry he like basically is saying like now they want to regulate us and that's just like when in in new york city the police you know they they harass innocent people just because of what some people did like uh it's not Um, quite the same like you do work at like a high security laboratory like dealing with like dangerous like biological agents so you know that is something that's mad like that you can the, regulate like a little bit more than like going to mosque. I would yeah, think, the, but, he's mad uh, the regulators are gonna like stop and frisk him to see if he has yeah, anthrax his, his, in his pockets. His anthrax plan backfired. <laughs> um, you know he. According yeah. to the UCLA Department of Epidemiology, I'm seeing here there was a, there's a video of Lieutenant uh, Colonel Philip Zach, um, Doctor Philip Zach, entering Fort Detrick Laboratory containing the anthrax spores after he was fired for racist attacks on an Egyptian co-worker. So, even though it, it did say 1992, I feel like that was I mean, such a long area before. Yeah, I, I don't know. But this is this is on UCLA's website where they're talking about this. Um, yeah, Dr. Ayad Assad and late-night research. Yeah, surreptitious work being done in the pathology lab late at night and on weekends. Dr. Mary Beth Down, I think they quoted straight from this article. Um yeah, so he was like a former employee of Fort Detrick at that point who was let in. He shouldn't have been allowed in. What the fuck? Yeah, I mean, like, so when we talk about, like, lab leaks, like, the, I, I definitely push back hard on the idea that, like, no nefarious individual uh, could gain access to this lab and get a specimen of it and then take it out and do something with it because there's, like, examples of this happening. Um, he, actually, um, Friends actually says something very interesting where uh, during his lecture where he talks about how, um, or I think he says Bob Graham did a kind of a Senate investigation in the 2000s about the anthrax thing and biosecurity and, you know, government labs and stuff. And Bob Graham said something along the lines of, uh, we are, we are way too worried about terrorists becoming biologists and not nearly worried enough about biologists, biologists becoming terrorists, terrorists. Yeah. which I think is kind of is kind of something true to that. You know, it's like it's yeah. way easier. It's way more likely that a biologist is going to become a terrorist than the other way around. Then Al Qaeda yeah. is going to like learn how to create like anthrax or something like that. Which apparently that's where most of the money was going in the two thousands. You know, funding like how how do we stop like a terrorist cell from like cooking up a batch of anthrax when in fact 
like the one anthrax attack was from somebody stealing it from a government lab who what would have been a scientist right so yeah, yeah it, it's very um it's all very sus but just a few other things that david franz like mentions in his lecture that relate to covid which are interesting because his his like his resume seems to contradict a few of the things he says even though he's very he's very pro gain of function in this uh, lecture he describes a few different experiments that came about in the early 2010s so one he talks about i think it was in maybe 2013 he describes a paper where they where scientists took the h5n1 um it was the bird flu virus right um, that was kind of, that it had just recently gone around. Was an H1N1 swine flu? Am I right? Maybe it, no, I think it was a bird flu because they it, they no H1N1 was swine flu. Oh, yeah, what? H five it, it, yeah. it was H5N1 swine flu. Mm-hmm. Let me see. No, no, that, that is bird flu. H5N1 is the bird flu. Yeah, yeah a, avian influenza. So I guess what it, what a group of scientists did was they they did a study where they edited. Uh, basically did gain a function research on h5n1 to make it easier to infect mammals in particular ferrets and it came to i guess the advisory board on the pentagon that david franz was sitting on and there was uh, i guess he said it caused great controversy in the scientific community whether or not they should uh, allow this to be published you know with basically all the sequencing and like kind of you know a uh I think what people have described Dashak's work as like an anarchist cookbook of like how to cook up a chimera virus or something. And so some people said this could be dangerous. Um, And he explains, yeah, maybe. But then he advised to publish it because he said, you got to publish the research. You just got to publish it. Yeah, you just got to publish it. A science is good all the time. Um, So he thought it was in because he said something funny. It was like. You know, I, I, at the end of the day, I believe you just got to publish the research and you got to put it out there because I believe at the end of the day, there are more good scientists out there yeah, than he's bad the same scientists. Thing. Like the vast majority of scientists like are good. I mean, that yeah, maybe you don't true, need that. Ma- like, I'm sure that's true. But like you don't need that many bad ones to do something really awful. <laughs> like, yeah, especially you know I mean? like, I don't know. I just feel like the bad ones are often... Yeah, exactly. You don't need that many bad ones to do something bad. Uh, what if you can't detect the bad, the bad ones, ones because they're running like the whole funding? Yeah. Bad. I guess like, like what if, if they're the leading lights of the industry? If you don't recognize DARPA as being bad, then like that's a flawed like axiology, uh, and you can't like really you know make a rational decision about like you know how many good scientists there are because like if you're like it's awesome to develop a bioweapon uh, yeah exactly exactly fight. and and so then but then he he says something much a really he cites a really interesting study from april 2014 the university of maryland and what they did is they were experimenting with h7n9 which i guess was like a later version of i think the bird flu and they what they did in that study was they put it in ferrets once again i think they're like pretty similar to humans so that's why they do it and they passed it. They did passages of basically uh, ferrets infecting each other, like back and forth, just ferret to ferret. All the, that's all they did. And after doing a gain of function on this uh, H seven and nine, and what they found is after ten passages back and forth, it became transmissible to humans. And so he jumped out at that. He's right. like, "Well, this is interesting because you you don't need a lab." All you need is a cave to do this study. And I thought that was pretty scary. 
<laughs> yeah, so, right. Like, that became like a big controversy, right? Yeah. Like that. Yeah. And and it, it it and so that was actually the same year that and I think 2014 was also when Ebola blew up in Liberia and was like this huge thing. And that's when the Obama administration decided to put a three year pause on gain of function research in U.S. labs. It's also interesting that like that's around the same time that all of this eco health funding shifted to the Wuhan lab. Because it's like it was it was under stringent regulations in the U.S., so they had to go somewhere that was willing to play a little more fast and loose with virology. And who knows why the Chinese were as interested as they were in partnering with DARPA or like allowing DARPA to like fund their whole lab. But I don't know. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, the fact that he said this study really scared me because all you need is a cave to do it, and if it only took 10 cycles of transmission with ferrets for it to evolve into becoming a human, you know, transmissible to humans. So it's like, if that's what you believe about that study, unless David friends knew absolutely nothing about this, like proposal to DARPA in 2018, like, wouldn't you jump on that since you're Mr. Science advisor to eco health? Like, wouldn't you say like yeah. literally going into a cave to do this study is pretty scary and you shouldn't do it. So why is he, uh, but then he says right after that, well, but, you know, uh, you I gotta I put the research out there. He said, are we simply going to regulate this away? You know, he's just like, come on, what's the big deal? And then later he does mention uh, he made like I said earlier, he, he name drops Ralph Barrick, who is the you know the author of the noceum virus editing technique uh, and said, you know, we really need to do gain of function work on MERS. And I, I think Ralph has been shut down by these new, no. you know, evil regulations. Ralph. Then he brings up CRISPR, which I think had just been kind of started to roll out, you know, around 2016. I remember all those articles about it. And then he brings up a slide of the movie Gattaca and is like, that's awesome. literally what CRISPR is. Like, you know, it's it's a, oh, awesome. yeah. a future where you're going to be able to edit for specific genes and make people more beautiful and more intelligent and blah, blah, blah. It's like hmm, Hollywood. They just had it 20 years before we did. But he's just kind of mentions like, yeah, that's where we're going with uh, CRISPR. And, it, you know, no, no value judgment. It's dual use. You know, you can do whatever with it. But um, definitely just his mentioning of a couple of those studies is like it, it's very odd then he doesn't seem like a dumb person and why would he be sitting around you know hob i think i think we know why because he's in this game it's like a mafia a little bit i think at this high level of people that are doing like bio defense contracting work it must be kind of this insular club where people you you don't talk shit about other people like in the club and you don't you don't rock the gravy train. You don't try to derail yeah. the gravy train, right? And what you mentioned about CRISPR reminded me of this this other thing. Uh, again, that I read in, in Vanity Fair that, that mentioned CRISPR in particular. It was talking about you know the sort of early days of the pandemic and uh, how back then you know it didn't seem so crazy to think you know maybe it came out of a lab. And uh, they write uh, that apparently it didn't seem crazy to Xi Zongli either. Uh, a Scientific American article, first published in March 2020, for which she was interviewed, described how her lab had been the first to sequence the virus in those terrible first weeks. It also recounted how she frantically went through her own lab's records from the past few years to check for any mishandling of experimental materials, especially during disposal. She breathed a sigh of relief when the results came back. None of the sequences matched those of the viruses her team had sampled from bat caves. 
That really took a load off my mind, she says. I had not slept a wink for days. What, anyway, a, what, so, a, what a relief. Uh, yeah, as the NSC track, it's interesting that she hadn't slept, like, anyway, well, I don't know. Like, she's freaking I mean, out. She's, she's absolutely freaking out that, like, this yeah. happened and then is like, oh, like, actually, you know, no. Like, Peter Dash, I, like, deleted COVID from the servers. And, like, yeah. oh, I guess it's not there. But uh, this is the, the relevant part. As the NSC tracked these disparate clues, U.S. government virologists advising them flagged one study first submitted in April 2020. Eleven of its 23 co-authors worked for the Academy of Military Medical Sciences, the Chinese Army's Medical Research Institute. Using the gene editing technology known as CRISPR, the researchers had engineered mice with humanized lungs, then studied their susceptibility to SARS-CoV-2. As the NSC officials worked backwards from the date of publication to establish a timeline for the study, it became clear that the mice had been engineered sometime in the summer of 2019 before the pandemic even started. The NSC officials were left wondering, had the Chinese military been running viruses through humanized mouse models to see which might be infectious to humans? Believing they had uncovered important evidence in favor of the lab leak hypothesis, the NSC investigators began reaching out to other agencies. That's when the hammer came down. We were dismissed, said Anthony Ruggiero, the NSC Senior Director for Counterproliferation and Biodefense. The response was very negative. Wow. So, well, I mean, the 2018 DARPA proposal from EcoHealth, like, definitely mentions, like, using humanized mice for experiments to test, you know, yeah, like, gain-of-functioned COVID like, viruses. At the WIV, like, basically civilian scientists and, like, military people will be working side by side. Yeah. I'm not sure if like there were like US military people there. Could I be. don't believe so because uh one of the things highlighted in their proposal was they proposed that uh, EcoHealth manage all DARPA like contracts and projects in China that like basically we will just handle everything. Oh yeah, well like David Friend says, you know, you got to have qualified leaders and it has to be, you know, champion driven. Yes, by, yeah, they'd be champion-driven, and you have to be a heroes. real, yeah. yeah, and, I mean, I don't even know what Peter Daszak's, like, there's no information about his early life before, That's, like, like more fash to me than any of, like, the environmental stuff that they, like, all want to be, like, fucking, you know, like, they all have, like, these weird, like, Hercules complexes. These, like, mad scientist, like, vibes that we're kind of it's getting true. from they them. true, they do like, have mad scientists. Like, vibes. extreme arrogance, like, Peter Daszak, and also, I watched a few of his interviews, because now he's... This this is what's the, the the kind of the sickest thing, the weirdest thing, is that Peter Daszak has made himself into like a very public spokesman about like whatever the the mainstream consensus on COVID is. Like he's been on CNN multiple times. Like like you said, uh, he was on the WHO investigative team that did, and then went on C- CNN to basically, and and I think sixty minutes. You know, he went back there a couple times to basically. Um, you know, describe why his, his great, uh, ferret badger theory, which is funny because like, uh, David Franz's like lecture just mentions all these experiments with ferrets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so even that ferrets. is a little bit like, uh, you know, but, uh, but you just watch him. He does have the, like, I, I, I can sense his vibe shifted, uh, like from the things he was like five, 10 years ago and like his modern press appearances, um, depending on uh, particularly the one where he was being grilled by see by 60 minutes. I don't know. He just like, his eyes are kind of like 
darting back and forth like really quickly and he just seems totally like no here's why i can tell you like why the lab leak is not convincing you know and all this stuff he just he's super sketchy like not even in like an sj sus like which is like a guy who's being deceptive like he's covering uh, i up mean the something. fact that they were like we need to organize this like letter to like denounce conspiracy theories but then we can't put our names on it because like then it will seem like I mean, come on! Like that's straight up yeah. deceptive. Like it's and that's, well, like, like the like, CIA's like, creation of its behavior. It's yeah, yeah, it's suspicious behavior, exactly. And I don't know. We just can't trust it. There's more damning proof of coronavirus originating from the Wuhan Virology Lab in China. India today is accessed now an explosive video of Peter Desac, member of WHO International Expert Group. He's the president of the EcoHealth Alliance. And in this video, which dates back to a few years ago, Desac boasts about the manipulation of a killer SARS-like coronavirus carried out by his colleagues in China. So we sequenced the spike protein, the protein that attaches to cells. Then we, well, I didn't do this work, but my colleagues in China did the work. An explosive video of Dr. Peter Dazak boasting about the manipulation of killer SARS-like coronavirus being carried out by colleagues, as he put it, in China. In this 2016 video, Dr. Dazak speaks at a forum on emerging infectious diseases and the next pandemic and describes in detail the research being carried out at the Wuhan lab in China. Then, you, then when you get a sequence of a virus and it looks like a relative of a known nasty pathogen, just like we did with SARS, we found other coronaviruses in bats, a whole host of them. Some of them looked very similar to SARS. So we sequenced the spike protein, the protein that attaches to cells. Then we, well, I didn't do this work, but my colleagues in China did the work. You create pseudoparticles, you, look, you insert the spike proteins from those viruses, see if they bind to human cells. And each step of this, you move closer and closer to this virus could really become pathogenic in people. This is also indicative of the growing proof of Wuhan Institute of Virology's deep financial and personal ties to US President Joe Biden's top advisor on health, Dr. Anthony Fauci's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Nasty. Peter Dezak heads EcoHealth Alliance, which is reported to have funneled funds through the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And we went out to southern China and did surveillance of bats across southern China. And we've now found, after you know, six or seven years of doing this, um, over a hundred hmm. new SARS-related coronaviruses, very close to SARS. Some of them get into human cells in the lab. Um, some of them right. can cause SARS disease in humanized mouse models and are untreatable uh, with uh, therapeutic mm -hmm. monoclonals, and you can't vaccinate against them with the vaccine. Dr. Dezak's EcoHealth Alliance is in the eye of a storm for sending 600,000 US dollars to the Wuhan lab that is seen as the source of the coronavirus. Dr. Dezak is also reported to have organized a statement expressing solidarity with scientists and health professionals in China. The statement read, we stand together to strongly condemn conspiracy theories suggesting that COVID-19 does not have natural origin, unquote. 
Dr. Desac also thanked Anthony Fauci in April 2020 for downplaying the theory that the coronavirus may have leaked from a lab. But with more information filtering out, seeking closer scrutiny of the Wuhan lab, Dr. Fauci too has now called for more investigations. I do not have any accounting of what the Chinese may have done, and I'm fully in favor of any further investigation of what went on in China. However, I will repeat again, the NIH and NIAID categorically has not funded gain-of-function research to be conducted in the Wuhan. Just like we did with SARS, we found... Dr. Dezak's 2016 boast about the manipulation of the killer SARS-like virus carried out by his colleagues in China has once again brought the spotlight on the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Bureau report, India Today. I think um, maybe we'll, we'll start to wrap up, but I think the most appropriate way to end would be, I don't know if you've read it yet, but Peter Dashik's uh, paper called A Fall from Grace to Virulence. Oh, yeah, I did. From 2008. It, it, it was short as far <laughs> it's as short, I can tell. Yeah. But it's Unless it's a great. window into the mind of this incredible scientist. This yeah, and I, scientist. the picture is pretty interesting, too. I don't know if you looked at the painting. Uh, let me, oh, actually, let me look. He described such a, a, a beautiful... Um, it's, description it's not it. what you might expect. It's not like, you know, an expressionist type of thing. It's very, like, Boschian. Uh, oh, wow. Weird yeah, I'm looking at picture, it right now. Yeah. The Fall of the Rebel Angels by Peter Bruegel the Elder from 1562. And it depicts uh, it depicts Lucifer along with other fallen angels that have been banished from heaven. And I guess there's a... Is that the Archangel Michael in the middle? Like, yeah. Like, like fighting? Yeah, that's yeah the there's movie. angels fighting. Yeah, the hero. And, the, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. and there's even some, like, strange, like, like yeah, kind of chimeric the, animals, like, yeah, floating around. Yeah, some of the rebel angels, or whatever they are, like, are very odd-looking. They look, yeah, they do kind of look like weird, like, viral beings or something. Yeah, uh, this actually yeah. is, this is kind of like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. It's, like, yeah, very bizarre. Like. Yeah, Very yeah, dark. Yeah, like the... Yeah, the uh, the rebel angels like, or well, the the humans mostly look, or the, the good angels mostly look normal, but some of the rebel angels are like fucking horrifying. Yeah, uh, they look like like little like fishmen or like yeah. a pig man. Um, there's like a belly splitting open with like, I don't know if that's like intestines or like eyeballs in it or something. Like this is really, yeah. yikes! No, it's, it's like a, it's they like a frog man like, like being yeah. like slit open like. Uh, what the I, fuck? I'm pretty sure okay. you can find like a bat somewhere in here. Yeah. There's oh, like there's definitely a bat. Like there's a girl with like things. it looks almost like a girl with like she's like a mermaid, but she has like monarch butterfly wings. No. Oh, uh, oh my god. Yeah. I don't well, know if it's a monarch butterfly. There's a. It looks like there's a pangolin a falling from heaven. No. Yeah, I do see kind of like the weird. Well, it looks. Yeah, it's weird. The more you look at it, the more fucking terrifying and bizarre it is. Like yeah, these are all like alien painting. creatures and like demons. And yeah. Stuff. Yeah, the, the one that's like this weird, like circular, like fish, like a screaming face. Like, yeah. <laughs> so it was very, you know, like very central in the picture. It's yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it looks like the the little hat, the white hat in the right 
side um looks like the meat baby like wearing a mask yeah there's like, like a weird Buffalo like Jay meat baby. fish thing like coming out of an egg of course an egg which has of like a singer on on it you know oh it's God. very weird yeah uh, yeah so i don't there's know like this is what Jin wearing like a fucking spaceman hat and he's like wearing like he's like and yeah he looks like kind of the meat baby and he's got like a little like cutlass and yeah it's it's weird uh, he, he looks like he has a mask on like he's wearing his yeah he's mask wearing like he bit. looks like he's wearing a spaceman helmet and he has like a ouija board planchette like uh, for clothes and that's it like it just like <laughs> it's belted onto him uh, it's so yeah. weird so i guess you know without yeah. further ado right. uh, for people you know definitely google it it's fucking bizarre but okay so he wrote this article in 2008 um you can find it on the nh nih website um, in the Eco Health Journal, of which Peter J- Dashik is the editor in chief of, and some, I assume, uh, Ukrainian person named Alexei Chamora, I was I was curious if Peter Dashik he seemed he sounds Polish, but everyone, you know, ain't nothing new. Uh, mispronounces his name as like Dazak or Dasik or something like that, but I don't, but he's British. He's very British, so. I wonder if he's like the son of like some anti-communist like Polish immigrant <laughs> or something like that. Anyways, um, he wrote this paper, A Fall from Grace to Virulence, and I'll just read it. Okay. Yeah. Peter Daszak writes, in Bruegel's painting of the fall of the rebel angels, we are witness to a tumbling maelstrom of falling rebel angels outcast from heaven. Within the fray stands St. Michael in gilded armor and his angels at arms serenely in pale albs, and almost as if threshing grain, hewing and striking down this inconceivable route. The main focus of the image and what draws the eye is the extraordinarily creative melange of creatures, mixtures of human, animal, plant, and inanimate objects slashing and stabbing as they fall from the great battlefields in the skies. They pour down in a vast column that stretches infinitely from the luminous sun. They fall from the light to the darkness. The column of falling angels is so numerous that it widens to encompass the whole lower canvas as it approaches the viewer. With a start, then, we realize that Bruegel intends that we too are in the thick of this. Will we succumb to the multitudinous horde? Are we to be cast downward into chthonic chaos represented here by the heaped-up gibbering phantasmagoria against which we rail and struggle? Clearly Bruegel intended for us to identify with St. Michael and his comrades. The classic imagery of religious battles between humanity and evil is straightforward fodder for us to digest, but is there another metaphor here? If the fallen angels represent the evil mirror image of St. Michael and his cohort, so they also represent the mirror image of our own genetic kind, pathogenic organisms which are otherwise just like us, but have fallen from grace through an evolutionary, not spiritual, pathway that takes them to another world where they can feed only on our genes, our cells, our flesh. On closer scrutiny, we can see that Bruegel has depicted the natural world, specifically chosen it as proxy for the fallen angels, for both its fascinating wonder and horror. Thus we may thus may we surmise that nature was, in Bruegel's mind, itself as strange, wondrous, and horrific as the fallen angels that he depicted in the juxtaposed forms of otherwise anatomically correct fishes, bats, and frogs. Bruegel was an urban man, and precisely because of his lack of intimate knowledge of nature— he capitalizes nature, by the way. Awesome. He was like, yeah, he was likely able to observe it with such precision. No doubt, he was influenced during time spent in France and Italy by that unique Renaissance creation, the scientific method, or means to learn about phenomena via empirical evidence. Today, we are not unlike Bruegel as we view the wondrously diverse animals and plants that represent nature, uh, where he he 
ends things in question marks that aren't posed as questions. But anyways, uh, okay. today, right. today we are not unlike Bruegel as we view the wondrously diverse animals <laughs> and plants that represent nature peering beneath this palimpsest, uh, the pathogens that threaten to plague us. AIDS, SARS, malaria, West Nile virus, and avian influenza are but a few of these fallen angels that have burst from out of the natural world to wreak havoc, causing countless deaths and economic losses. In Bruegel's curious chimeras, we find yet another analogy. For the genetic recombination, mutation, and evolution that negative stranded RNA viruses in particular undergo (laughs) as they shift, morph, and adapt to their changing habitat, animal cells. Here St. Michael is at risk of more than just the prodding of a sword. Here he is at the mercy of the tooth and nail of glycoproteins, sharpened and honed to strike with precision through the gaps of his golden armor. As Pulliam shows in this issue of EcoHealth, this battle continues in reality (laughs) as human encroachment... uh, Yeah, this battle continues in reality as human encroachment into wildlife habitat and the increasing globalization of agriculture, trade, and travel bring us into dramatic juxtaposition with a seemingly infinite number and variety of viral angels hosted by the wildlife we contact and exploit. In this prescient scene... Bruegel reminds us that our battle against novel zoonotic pathogens is far from over. They lie in wait in a multitude of surely the same overwhelming dimensions as Bruegel's column of descending angels. Perhaps he reminds us also that it is the nature of our interactions with wildlife, here represented as an evil entity for humanity to vanquish, which caused new zoonoses to emerge in the first place. Perhaps the eco-health view is that if we tread carefully, we might avoid those nasty little pincers waiting to nip. (laughs) Nice. The end. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't even know. I don't even know what the fuck. Uh, so, the virus is a demon. Um, yes, yeah, and viruses are like our, our biological brethren that are fallen from grace by an evolutionary fall. Not spiritual. And yeah, you kind of have to look at the picture to, like, kind of understand what he's getting at. Because, yeah, like, the angels look like very naturalistic and, like, you know, accurately represented. Actually, I, I'm reading now on Wikipedia that, like, this originally was thought to be a Hieronymus Bosch painting, but hmm. something that doesn't quite... Yeah, that is, like, an element that I wouldn't necessarily associate with Hieronymus Bosch, which is that the humans look really normal, mm-hmm. and the fallen angels, you know, they're, like, all these bizarre... I mean, like, yeah, they are, like, very ginly, you know? It's a, 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 an evocative depiction of, like... A, Jin, honestly, in a non-Islamic, uh, you know, uh, context of this sort of, uh, maybe this could be interpreted as a picture of the of the Jin war rather than the war, <laughs> the war in heaven. But uh, true, you know, his reading of it is like kind of like these. They're like chimeras, basically. You know, they are. These, they're uh, literally chimeras, and he's already yeah. back in two thousand eight. He's very obsessed with these curious chimeras, and particularly, uh, what did he say? Like uh, negative, negative yeah. stranded <laughs> RNA viruses, and like particularly, did he? He didn't mention coronaviruses, but but like respiratory viruses. Also, it did make me think the first time that he mentioned like the mirror image of us that it also like this represents like the war of the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. What's more deplorable than these like gin yeah. like writhing who are like they're just like us. But see, that's weird because like, and, and again, maybe that's his one health like well, brainwashing actually, kicking in. But like, we're not a virus. Like, we're humans. We're animals. Yeah. We're different. 
We're not the. Well, I mean, know, is that chauvinistic? Seeing, I don't know. He's looking through. He's saying we are not unlike Bruegel as we view the wondrously diverse animals and plants that represent nature peering beneath this palimpsest, the pathogens that threaten to plague us. So yeah, one of those questions are. Yeah, uh, he, mean, like, he meant like, are, are we, we not, not, but he unlike, wrote, we are not, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. So he's, yeah, yeah, he's and saying, then he talks about, yeah, the, a fallen angel that is burst from the capital N, natural world. Very weird, like, capitalization of nature, like, natural yeah. world. Like, what? Like what is that all about? Like, that's not Causing normal. countless deaths and economic he, losses. Why, why, why is he in a guy religion? What? I feel like everyone at the Earth Institute is in the guy, the secret guy. Well, but religion. he has like a weird, like you know, yeah. I mean, definitely like having a, an appreciation for nature, like is natural. You know, like I have. I'm looking, you know, just at this like framed picture that we have, like of different leaves. You know, like on on our wall and things. You know, like uh, nature is very beautiful. But like uh, one of the things that I like, I, I wouldn't like necessarily admire age you know like i wouldn't like you know be like wow like look at the what nature has created you know well, like this, you know, you know nature one, didn't create it. that's fine yeah oh, okay yeah you know this, name this something that wasn't created world. by like nazis and fort Detrick. um yeah. yeah sure like i wouldn't like spanish flu i wouldn't be like amazing brave like you're just like me i want to i want to understand you like i need to get over my virophobia to like you know like is that we're gonna like i don't know it's like a very bizarre leveling which kind yeah. of syncs up with this overall ideology that there like literally is no difference between human health animal health and like environmental health like they're all just equal like it, it feels like he takes it on a kind of reductive level like there's a nuanced way maybe of where that's like a good idea and everything is kind of a system but it kind of had it smacks of a little bit of like messianic oversimplification. Well, it's actually like weird because he's, he's saying like Bruegel has depicted the natural world, specifically chosen it as a proxy for the fallen angels. I wouldn't consider like because in this, like you know the the angels, say, uh, uh, you know uh, the archangel Michael or uh, uh, Michael uh, is, um, you know he's represented as a human so he's saying the angels of the humans and the natural world of the fallen angels the humans are part of the natural world yeah. so i would actually say that that's the opposite in a way where he's kind of drawing a dichotomy and it's like you know we are part of nature you know like uh it's kind of like when neil degrasse tyson who you know it's interesting before we started recording i was just uh talking to you about his uh comments about how we might live in a simulation or something and cool. he has some tweet once that was like the universe doesn't care about you and I someone replied that. it's like you know well, we're part of the universe so like it's the same kind of thing of like this objectification of the natural world but somehow separating us from it so that's what i would say is almost going on here and it's weird because like yeah he's saying that those are the demons but it almost seems like he like doesn't really have like he's kind of uh charmed by the demons in a way like those well, yeah. nasty little pincers the curious like, chimeras like the cute little gin yep. that's like cute coming baby. to like sting you with its egg out? pincer you know yep. yeah yeah don't let his little pincers get you yeah no it's i mean he i think he like, is cute li a, like gucci gucci goo aids you know like <laughs> i think he's like, like he maybe i don't know if like you know scientists like that that do gain a function research develop like emotional attachments to their i feel like there's pathogens, a little bit of that but... bleeding through here uh, to be honest like i mean you he know, is kind of a creator of of them and they are yeah. his little babies aren't they and he's got to protect <laughs> his babies no matter what yeah i mean i actually love bats i think bats are very cute and like uh you know they're mammals they have wings they're unique like i mean all people love animals people love nature and like i also 
definitely do agree in principle with the idea that like again like yeah, we are part of our environment. You can't separate us from our environment. Like, if you poison the air or whatever, like, it's going to affect human beings. Like, that is yeah. true. But, but it also like, applies to fucking gain-of-function like, gain research. Yeah, you know exactly. What I mean? Like, if, we all, if everything affects everything, man, then um, you doing uh, things to insert a furin cleavage site into a fucking bat virus to make it infect humans, uh, I think that would qualify as, like, being part of, like, the cybernetic web of life and nature. Like, you know? Yeah, and, like, it, the It's thing such a weird blind I, spot. Like, you know, but this is, like, so weird because it's, like, yeah, this is almost, like, the, the this analysis kind of is, like, it's one thing to be, like, oh, you know, these dangerous things emerge from the natural world as a result of our behavior, but it's almost, like, he kind of wants, like, to, to reconcile, you know, with the demons, almost. you know, like, that AIDS is, like, we just need to, like, understand AIDS or so, like, something, like, you know, we just need to, like, shake hands with AIDS and figure, you know, like, have a sit down and figure out what's wrong because it's, like, just part of the capital N capital w natural world we need to unite with aids against the real problem which is uh i don't know disease itself or something <laughs> you know like my yeah mother. uh <laughs> you know michael is unite the with aids against of the, the tooth and nail of glycoprotein sharpened and honed to strike with that's not my interpretation it definitely seems like the glycoproteins are not winning i don't know i just feel like this is a very obviously it's a very tendentious reading and i feel like this must have been like some kind of weird conference where like they were doing like, you know, scientists interpret paintings or something like Maybe, that. Maybe, yeah. Uh, I mean it was in his magazine that he edits. So he's the editor in chief of Equal yeah, Health maybe magazine. He did some kind so. of special issue on this topic or he just it was I mean, well I guess yeah, he yeah. did choose a topic. And this is just like such a weird like reading where yeah, it it does it, there's something weird about it. Like, you know, I mean I guess he is kind of saying that they are dangerous, but, like, it kind of is at odds with the whole idea of, like, the natural world is part of us. Like, he's saying that, you know, man and nature are in a way separate, but they're they're kind of not, you know. Yeah, of, no, they're they're nature, not. You know? It's also, it, it it's curious that, because um, you, you you dug this up, uh, is New York Times opinion piece, that, like, he was talking this in this, like, weird way about chimeric viruses, and then you found the thing about disease X, and yeah. his op-ed from February 2020, yeah, we knew right. Disease X was coming. It's here now. So maybe uh, before we get out of here, I'll just read this where he, I don't know, is he talking about his baby here? I don't know. He said, in early 2018, during a meeting of the WHO in Geneva, a group of experts I belong to, the R&D blueprint, coined the term Disease X. We were referring to the next pandemic, which would be caused by an unknown novel pathogen that hadn't yet entered the human population. As the world stands today on the edge of the pandemic precipice, it's worth taking a moment to consider whether COVID-19 is the disease our group was warning about. Disease X, we said back then, would likely result from a virus originating in animals and would emerge somewhere on the planet where economic development drives people and wildlife together. Disease X would probably be confused with other diseases early in the outbreak and would spread quickly and silently, exploiting networks of human travel and trade. It would reach multiple countries in port containment. Disease X would have a mortality rate higher than a seasonal flu, but would spread as easily as the flu. It would shake financial markets even before it achieved pandemic status. In a nutshell, COVID-19 is disease X. I mean... You know, and then he goes on in this article basically to say, you know, that he gives that kind of ecological explanation for how we can stop um, and do prevention, which, of course, means like make vaccines. We're going to have to make a vaccine and also some shit about like don't do climate change as much. 
or something like that. Yeah, and he also he mentions constantly that for like doing preparatory investment before a pandemic starts gives you a nine to one economic return in the money you save when <laughs> you successfully fight the thing. You know, yeah. He also says here, oh yeah, he makes his little subtle pitch. As COVID-19 strikes today and a spate of other pathogens are ready to emerge in the future, we continue to butt up against nature. Lowercase n here. Uh-huh. Scientists estimate there are 1.6 million unknown well, it's not viruses. His magazine, so probably yeah, he they can't were like, do it. Uh, this is not formatting. NYT properly. formatting. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, is that there's 1.67 uh, million unknown viruses of the type that have been previ- that have previously emerged in people. Discovering and sequencing them should be a priority. A simple case of know your enemy. It, he also loves like defense language. Uh, talking about this in the aftermath of oh, SARS. Yeah. Research on coronaviruses originating in bats has discovered more than 50 related viruses, some of which have the potential to infect people. This information can now be used to test for broad actions, vaccines, and drugs. Scaling up this effort to cover all viral families, as the Global Virome Project proposes to do, is a logical first step towards prevention. Yeah, but oh, and then he says the the money line at the end, which other people have noticed. He says at the end of this op-ed, pandemics are like terrorist attacks. We know roughly where they originate and what's responsible for them, but we don't know exactly when the next one will happen. They need to be handled the same way, by identifying all possible sources and dismantling those before the next pandemic strikes. No, okay, no. all right, uh, a war on disease, well, uh, you know, the endless war on disease. Well, say, I don't know if it was him, but it was in one, I think it might have been him, uh, in one uh, like sort of piece about disease X, he said, you know, disease X could be a bioweapon. It probably won't be, but it, it could be. <laughs> WHO hedged its bets. Yeah, and it was, hmm, what is disease X? Yeah, I guess this wasn't him, but it was it was Amesh Adalja, I guess. Right. Uh, mainstream media articles have suggested disease X might come from a bioweapon from North Korea or Syria, but many experts agree that it will be zoonotic, most likely a virus. Amesh Adalja senior scholar at the John Hopkins University Center for Health Security, told the BMJ disease X is likely to be a respiratory spread virus with the highest pandemic potential, which would make it very hard for public health measures to intervene. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. We failed I mean, to avoid it's it. It's like they, I mean, this this whole gang, the EcoHealth gang, really feels like the PNAC of COVID. Like, yeah, they it would be so great if, like, something could happen, or it would be so bad if this happened, because then we'd all get billions of dollars, and get yeah, to do exactly. everything we ever wanted to do and then all these yeah, billionaires can fund us. Yeah, we get to have us. our amazing, fun, like, war in heaven. <laughs> you know, like, uh, our, yeah, yeah, our yeah. exciting he, he, little I think he wants, battle I think he wants the world to burn. Pincers. He wants, yeah. like, his little babies to run around the world and... Like well, yeah, that's the like the unfortunate. Of... That's the unfortunate thing, and I think that you kind of see it with like it's actually almost in a way. Well, I won't say it's worse, but it's uh, definitely analogous to some of these like bloodthirsty freaks, like you know someone like a John Bolton or like a Michael yeah. Flynn, you know, where they're like they or want, Michael Scheuer. Yeah, exactly. You they gotta love... kill Osama bin Laden. I don't care if you kill civilians. Who cares? Yeah. You know, they love yeah, they love war so much that like they want. Or Rumsfeld is actually a great thing. You know, where yeah, like yeah. even in that book by Mitch Dector, like you can't you can't hide how happy like the energy of like his happiness after 9-11. And yep. it's the same thing for these people. Like it's their life's work. It's their love. So. They're kind of like not upset. Like they're kind of having a good no. time. Like this is what this is great. This for is what them. they've always wanted. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, uh, last thing, did you happen to watch any of the Indian cable TV segments? I, yeah, uh, I watched it. Because those, like yeah. those are the only news sources like in English that are even kind of talking about. Maybe there's like some Epic Times bullshit. But in terms of like a cable news channel, like talking about it, they're kind yeah. of the only. It's like the BJP Modi people are like definitely all about like hammering. Maybe because like, I don't know, they're... Like you think, I don't know. They're attacking both. Uh, they're definitely attacking Peter Daszak as a sus lord, and they found yeah. a clip from a presentation. I wasn't able to find. Of course, they like they don't label it, so you can't look it up yourself. But it is him talking about over like a very like uh, agitated Indian narrator. <laughs> Yeah, right. (laughs) But he basically brags about creating a, quote, like, killer virus in 2016. Yeah. Let me see what his exact quote. He said, you insert the spike protein, see if it binds to humans. Each step, you get closer to closer to this virus could be pathogenic to humans. And I think he said, like, we did it. Well, not me, but, like, the researchers in China that we're partnered with have done this, like, and blah, blah, blah. He just kind of mentions casually. So, like, again, it's, like, kind of... uh, basically admitting it like kind of yeah like like a lot of things we talk about like sometimes not actually like hidden like a thing you might think is a smoking gun is something that somebody might just say out in public and like because of the milieu they're in and because the media never jumps on it they don't care like he he can go write all these weird articles about like you know chimera angels like rising up from the deep and Yeah, I mean, I feel like they have a little bit like it's like a little bit of duping delight going on. And you can catch like, you know, you can catch that sometimes with people who like have a little bit, you know, it's kind of like when uh, people like, uh, yeah, maybe or people I was who came to mind was like someone like Nick Fuentes, you know, like he will be like, you got to Millennials must learn to use irony. You know, Uh, you can't just say that you're a fascist, you know, Uh, but I do wonder how many cookies you could bake in an oven, you know, something like that, you know, like, and it's like, yeah, okay, we get it. But like, they have a little bit of joy out of like, you know, that you can't quite catch me, you know? Uh, Yeah. I get that big energy from Peter Daszak for sure in kind of everything though. Yeah, I mean, he's just failed up. Same with Fauci. Fauci does the same kind of shit, too. And, you know, he's somebody that definitely... Some people are accusing him of lying to Congress, which, yeah, definitely in spirit he did, but is still in charge of the whole thing, you know, at, like, 80 years old. Like, that that guy definitely knows where all the bodies are buried, and I really think he is kind of, you know, maybe in different ways, but it's like the J. Edgar Hoover of, like, American public health policy. And probably like bio, the bio warfare industrial complex, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know. It's just more Pentagon money well spent, I suppose. But I guess we can, we could probably leave it, leave it there. Yeah. Mm. Not to be negative. But he's going <laughs> to kill your entire family. Uh, <laughs> he is literally, yeah, Alex literally is saying everybody that gets the COVID vaccine is going to die within the next six months to like three years. Like you're already dead. Yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed. It just kind of sucks uh, and doesn't, you know, kill everybody. It does seem like a, like a, not a good plan for the globalists. Like why would you kill everybody? To leave only the Patriots. uh, Yeah. Like, yeah. Leave only the Patriots. Unless it's a right wing, like wackle plot the entire time. And like Dashik is Dashik's hero, Donald Rumsfeld. Like he's avenging him from beyond the grave and you know, all that stuff. But I think more likely these nefarious billionaires are using this for their great reset in a kind of synergistic way and also like manipulating us socially and instituting a new regime of like bio control over all of our lives that 
can be justified by like an extraordinary crisis, which is perfectly calibrated to be kind of dead, like deadly enough to take it seriously, but not so deadly. There's still ambiguity about it. And then everyone can fight with each other. And then people start looking at unvaccinated people like they're the demons in that painting that Dashik is obsessed with. And that's probably not a good place to be for us. So, you know, I guess we'll leave it there. <laughs> yes. It is a dark winter. It has been the dark win the DARPA winter has it, not ceased. It, yeah. We're about to go into our second dark winter. Yep. And uh I don't know what else to say, but you know, look into these people, be sussed out by them. It could, that can only be a positive uh, development for your life. And until watch next out time. Watch for those nasty pinchers. Yeah, watch out for those nasty pinchers, those curious chimeras. Yes. <laughs> and until next time, dear listeners. Stay vigilant. Peace. Global controls will have to be imposed, and a world-governing body will be created to enforce them. Crises precipitate change. <laughs> Secretly plotting your demise. I want to devise a virus to bring dire straits to your environment. Crush your corporations with a mild touch. Trash the whole computer system and revert you to papyrus. I want to make a super virus. Strong enough to cause blackouts in every single metropolis. Because they don't want to unify us. So fuck it. Total anarchy and can nobody stop us. You see, late in the evening. Fucked up on my computer and my mind starts roaming. I create like a heathen. The first cycles of this virus like a sin through a modem. Infiltration hits your station. No Microsoft or enhanced DOS will impede. Society thinks they're safe when bingo hard drive crashes from the rending. A lot of hackers tried viruses before. Vaporize your text like so much whiteout. I want it where file replication is a chore. Lights out, shut down entire White House. I don't want just a bug that could be corrected i'm erecting immaculate design break the nation down section by section even to the greatest minds it's impossible to find i want to devise a virus to bring dire straits to your environment crush your corporations with a mild touch trash your whole computer system and revert you to papyrus i want to devise a virus to bring dire straits to your environment crush your corporations with a mild touch trash your whole computer system and revert you to papyrus the plan is programmed into every one of my thousand robots. We will not hesitate. We will destroy the Homo sapiens. Break right through they terminals, burn them all, slaves of silicon, corrupt politicians with leaders and their keywords. FBI and spies stealing bombs, precipitate their plans in their face and catch the fever. Everybody loot the stores, get your canned goods, even space stations are having a hard time. Peacekeepers seek to take our manhood, which results in the form of global apocalypse.
apartheid. Ghettos are trashed up with gas pumps, exploded and burnt out since before the Great Union. The last punks walk around like mass monks, ready to manipulate the database or break through them. Human rights come in a hundredth place. Mass production has always been number one. New Earth has become a repugnant place, so it's time to spread the fear to fund us up. <laughs> Straight to your environment. Crush your corporations with a mild touch. Trash the whole computer system and revert you to papyrus. I want to devise a virus to bring dire straits to your environment. Crush your corporations with a mild touch. Trash the whole computer system and revert you to papyrus. <laughs> 